G'day folks, AOS Coach here. I hope you are all doing incredibly well and, um, I don't know, thinking about your own tournament because you're listening to me and this is the tournament talk. Um, I'm here with the, the NashCon crew. I'm here with David and do you want to be called Anthony or do you want to be called Crazy Horse? Like uh, you're always like- doesn't matter. I respond to whatever. I'm just here so I don't get fined. Paul Castro, <laughs> Crazy Horse, 3D Printing Man. Uh, look, the, this is the legends that are behind the NashCon tournament. And I wanted to talk to you, like I, I do a lot of tournament discussions and it's about, you know, pack riding and running tournaments. And for the last, really since Age of Sigma has kind of been around and I've been a part of the online community, I constantly hear about a couple of tournaments that are always got some of the most raving fans, people who are just having like, it's a, an event that's in the diary. Um, Holy Wars is definitely one of them, you know, the Holy series. Um, there's a couple of them that have really good reputations. And NashCon is probably top five, easily top three tournaments that have uh, amazing reputation, raving fans. People will clear their diaries to attend. People borrow. I've borrowed a few ideas off you, David. Um, and I know other tournaments have looked for you for inspiration. So I think what I wanted to do today is just have a conversation around what's the magic source behind NashCon and what can we possibly do to kind of learn how to make a memorable tournament? How's that sound? Sounds great. I don't know if I'm up for the billing, but we'll, we'll, we'll try, we'll try it out. It's simple. <laughs> Look, you've got hit, one man who's organized. You can see David's office and one man whose life is a disaster. As you can see my office, you can't see you the need. rest of my office. <laughs> It's fine. It's we got the fine. brains and the brawn. We got the brains and the brawn. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. look, I'm really looking forward to this because, um, and it's going to be interesting, right? Because I know if you're listening to this, you are either an event organizer yourself, you are somebody who is active in the tournament scene. Maybe you attend a lot of tournaments and you have a close relationship with a TO, or maybe even you know you help run your monthly events at your friendly local game store and you're trying to think about how do I grow my scene? How do I get more people to attend? How do I uh, make a better experience so that they, they refer their friends and their family and they all come in and, you know, the, the, the scene grows. And one thing I've kind of learned as a tournament organizer, and I want to get into your heads, is being a TO is a lonely role. Most people only get one shot a year. You are learning as you go. When you do something wrong, you hear about it very loudly. And when you do something right, you very rarely hear that feedback because it's just like, yeah, cool. It's just a good event. But there's a lot of magic in, in running a tournament and a memorable one. So that's what today is. And that's the context setting. But before we get into it, David, I'll get you to introduce yourself first. Then I'll go to Crazy Horse. And then I'll go back to David. And I want you to explain what is NashCon for anyone who has not heard of the NashCon tournament scene. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm uh, David Griffin. I've been in AOS since kind of AOS began. Um, kind of have the, the typical trajectory of Warhammer where you start as a kid, stop during college, and then pick it back up as an adult. Um, and so uh, definitely did that. I jumped in when everybody else jumped out when, when AOS started. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I think, you know, really got well, sunk my teeth into the, to the tournament scene kind of early on and then uh ran some i have some i have kind of a funny story about how nashcon started um that we can we can get to in a little bit but kind of started off with very little success and generally built up from there so it's it's been great love this love, love the game love the community um it's the best 
I'm Anthony Crazy Horse on uh, Twitter. I do a lot of 3D printing and uh, got into AOS through uh, playing D&D and needing miniatures for D&D and then went to an Adepticon, saw a bunch of games happening, hit up David like the next day because the first NashCon was happening and was like, hey, can I get in on that? He's like, yeah, we even have a community around here. Why don't you come hang out? He let me graciously beat him in my first ever game of AOS. and uh, Badly. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I was hooked ever since, and uh, so I decided to try to give back when I could when uh, when Ashcon grew rather large. I'll, uh, and I actually had the pleasure of actually meeting both of you at Adepticon. I'll never forget Crazy Horse role playing uh, Vince Venturella. Um, I don't oh know if God. Vince knew about that, but I remember rocking up and there was you and I think it was Jacob Berry, maybe. Yes. Um, yep. Had cosplayed the bald head, uh, the, the green apron, literally Vince's apron. And um, it was the funniest thing. And like, cause I didn't know you guys very well. I actually yeah. didn't know you at all. And I'm just like, what on earth is going on? And then I met David and he, he had this incre uh, incredible display board. Um, mm. It wasn't your Seraphon board. I can't remember. It was like a very watery, maybe it was a deep. No, I yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that but, one was nuts. I, I I I regretted it like immediately. It weighed like a million pounds. Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> yeah. So so what is NashCon? Because uh, obviously I imagine it's Nashville, Tennessee. Um, yep. But like, what is NashCon, and um, why should I attend? Yeah. So the the, the background on NashCon is basically I. Like I said, I got I got into the competitive scene relatively quickly um, back in like the Wild West days, um, and tried to run a tournament in Alabama, which is south of of Tennessee, where I'm where I'm from. And uh, I we kind of made the pack. We like spent like me and a buddy of mine spent like like days like making terrain, and it was one of those things like build it and they will come, and they didn't come. It was like 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 basically like nobody showed up. Uh, and so we had to like do like a pivot, like a, like, like a weekend before. And, and we just like decided to do a thing locally in Nashville. Um, and it was like a, like a really, really small, just local, but we had a blast. And basically that got around a little bit. And NashCon is like a, it's like a, a relatively small convention, mostly focused towards um, historical, uh, historical, like yeah, mostly like historicals. Um, and, uh, and they had recently had a, 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 a game system drop out and needed like to fill the space basically. And they heard that I was a, a TO, which was hilarious at the time. Cause I really wasn't, I, I was like a, a failure as a TO of anything. Um, and, but that, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll sign up and run one. And it, and we were like, like shared a room with like, I think war machine, I think, or something. And like, it was really like pretty, it wasn't, I don't think it was like like maybe 30 something people i think so it wasn't like anything extravagant or huge back in those days it was still more like a sizable you know tournament for aos um and uh and ever since then it's kind of we've kind of grown we pushed the other game systems out of our room and then we grew to a bigger room and then we kind of got more and more space and now we kind of are definitely like the biggest in in the convention um so yeah i mean really yeah so it's based in nashville tennessee um, we're really close to the airport, which is which is also really nice and for convenience. Um, and uh, you know, we we share a hall with kind of vendors, and there's like historicals. It's kind of a little bit different than like if you were to go to, to an Adepticon or something, where there's it's mostly what's well, a heavily like 40k, heavily games workshop. There's like you know Star Wars Legion, and like you know you're talking like hundreds of people. This is much more 
Uh, it's a, they're kind of a different mix or, uh, than, than like your typical convention, but it's great. And they, you know, um, we definitely occupy a lot of space and get a lot of uh, traffic through the area because of the terrain and general shenanigans going on. Yeah, I remember having a, it's funny you mentioned, you know, because back in the day, people might not appreciate this, that I used to travel like literally across state lines. Like I'd fly three hours to go to a tournament, which was 50 players. It was back yeah. in the day, 50 players was like insane. It was so big. Uh, now I'm, you know, I'm going to LVO, 300 odd players traveling the world. I wouldn't like leave bed for a 50 player tournament. Actually, that's a lie. But <laughs> yeah, like the, the scene has grown you know, exponentially and I remember going to a tournament, sounds very similar to what you've just shared, um, uh, one called BrizCon, I think it was called. And we shared like a hall with um, Fantasy, uh, Fantasy Battles. It was like the ninth yeah. age. There was uh, Malifaux. I think there was some X-Wing, uh, very like sword and spear, a lot of historical type. Uh, and it does bring a very different crowd when Games Workshop isn't the dominant tournament. Um, so it's always fascinating. But day, like Crazy Horse, how did you get into get involved in NashCon? So when I first thought about playing Age of Sigmar and it, I was at Adepticon and uh, David was on uh, Warhammer Weekly, like that week's Wednesday episode because NashCon was coming up. Um, and I, I just moved to Tennessee like a year earlier, maybe six months earlier. So I didn't know anybody. So I reached out to him through email and he's like, hey, we have a Facebook page. Come over here, yada, yada. Got hooked up with him. And uh, so I went to the first NashCon. Honestly, typical AOS, this is my first tournament ever. I'm terrified. I don't know nobody. I barely know the game. I barely know my rules. Terrified. I left there feeling like I had just made some amazing friends. I had an amazing time. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to keep doing this. Played the next year and then the next year. And then it got to hey, David. Uh, well, after the, I think during the second year is when I started picking up 3D printing. And I reached out to David and I was like, hey. I'm going to start printing stuff. Will you paint terrain to like up the game? And he's like, yeah, because we want to grow anyway. It's like, cool. And then once he got to 50 players, I was like, you probably need help, don't you? And he's like, yeah, he's by himself. His wife was gracious enough to help hand out packets for the first two years. And I was like, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'll bring an army. I'd love to play. But at this point, I think I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll ride your coattails and help you out and, and just, you know, be your partner in crime here. And he's like, yeah, let's do that. So I was like, okay. And we, David's been able to grow the event, and I've just been able to provide terrain and you know the little markers that help uh, things run smoother. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I yeah, as you can see some of the pictures on on there. Yeah, it's great. But I, I mean, honestly, he's underselling himself. Anthony prints an ungodly number of ter of terrain pieces, and like more than any single human being should should. Uh, and then uh, I also I could not have run uh, Nashcon the last year or the last year the or the time before that without him. It's like once you get once you get to a certain size, like no one person can do everything. Um, yeah. And uh, and it, there are a lot some other like logistic logistical things like how you take in scoring and stuff. We switched to Mesco's pairings this year that kind of simplified it a bit. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah, Anthony's been uh, instrumental in in Nashcon for a long, long, long time, uh, and, and and I think has grown into the organization organized one of the of the two of us now. I don't know about that. I just stay ahead of the curve a little bit because I do. My wife is gracious enough to let me travel to a lot more events than David gets out to, so I get to see what other people are doing and and try to take things I I think worked well and adjust things that I don't think they did very well, so that we can have 
the best event we possibly can couple of lessons already number one is to get a helper i i, I couldn't stress that um and it's interesting because my community uh in sydney not a lot of people want to put their hand up as a tournament organizer and everyone wants to play which is great but then one your tournament scene is tied to one or two particular people who are running running the scene but as you've said as well scale it's hard to scale when you don't have assistance so um if you can get involved and help your tournament organizer even if it's for half a day, be the buy buster. Um, it's it, like, you know, many hands makes light work. So yeah. um, like that, that's a, certainly a lesson I would share to a tournament organizer listening to this. But one of the things and part of the reason why I wanted to bring this up and 3D printing is definitely going to be a topic because I am a 3D printer. I go to, um, to Crazy Horse for advice all the time. But I want to know what makes nashcon special like what makes it different compared to maybe some of the other tournaments and i'm not like tooting your own horn or like you know uh we're the best for these reasons but just more what do you try to achieve with nashcon you know how are you bringing it to life what is the theme like what is it what is it your tournament all about yeah so i think it, it boils down to to a few things um one of them is uh well, I mean, we, we talked about it. I think we, we focus really heavily on terrain. We want we want the terrain to be a, like a focal point. We want you to be to be kind of immersed. And we've really worked on, on like immersive terrain tables um, uh, where you're having to make like really good um, like tactical decisions based on what's on the table as, as in addition to like what's what the armies on the table. Um, I think that that's one that's one aspect. I think probably over the years, we kind of have, I, I, I was early on in NashCon, I kind of cribbed a lot of stuff from other uh, events that I liked. Um, so the two list format ca came into it. This is, I'll explain what that is. Um, the two list format is basically you, you bring two lists to the, to two armies to the, to the, uh, to the event. They can be as different as a, uh, an artifact switch, or they can be kind of two completely different armies as long as they're in the same, as long as they're in the same faction. Um, and that, and the idea is that you reveal which one you're going to play with at the start of the game, uh, kind of at the same time as your opponent. Uh, and with that kind of, a, and you play, you play each of them at least once um, in, in the, um, over the course of the event. And I think that allows a little bit of flexibility in play, um, especially adapting to your what it's like bad matchups uh, or or um, scenarios. Um, so that that's a kind of another. I think we. I think I I took that from a face hammer event. I think like a long time ago, like a long long time ago. Um, so if anybody thinks that I invented that, I certainly did not. Um, well, I think I it's wanna... very popular in the Malifaux scene, like War Machines. They do two list formats, so. And I think Magic the Gathering yeah. has some two-deck formats, so it's not like unique to gaming, but it's something that's unique to, to Age of Sigmar. And I know when I was talking to someone, I've got a little tournament organizer chat in my Discord, and I was talking about this particular episode, and I know one of the concerns that came up was the fact that, you know, with two-list format, that is a that is potentially going to be a hindrance to, to people who travel, right? Like, do I need to bring a whole bunch of new models? Do I have to completely gut my list? And it's awesome to hear. It's just It could just be an artifact change. It could be a minor hero adjustment where you maybe reinforce yep. a unit and it's a minor tweak. Yep, exactly. It's as much or as little as you want, really. I mean, and the the only constraint we put on it is that it has to fit on it to this display board. So uh, in the in like and that's I mean pretty pretty lenient, honestly. And that that mostly just like reigns in the summoning a little bit to some degree, but it usually doesn't hold anybody back. Um, and I think the the last thing I I, I would kind of put a pin on is kind of 
incentivizing as much as you can from a TO perspective, like not only the competitive, like hard nose play, but also incentivizing the hobby as well. And then also kind of really heavily rewarding sportsmanship um, to, to try to have really good com competition there, which I think breeds really good games on the table. Um, we, I think, uh, and I think for the most part, uh, year over year, we have really good experiences on the table. Uh, and I think I, I like to think part of it is due to the how we're incentivizing things. The other part is that we have some amazing people who come every year from a player perspective um, that to, to NashCon who are kind of repeat uh, attendees. Um, like, and they they I, honestly like I'm me and Anthony are just two people. If you have it's really up to the other you know 90 people out on the on the floor and they're the people making the great games happen so um definitely give it over to the players as well anything anything you want to add to that uh so the more competitive edge i think is the two list format because if your list does have a bad matchup this allows you to get around that so this is that's like peak warhammer in my mind because you can tailor to any scenario which I thought was really cool from a competitor standpoint. And then uh, I ended up at a holy event early, loved playing at that event and the, the terrain. And then I went to a couple of small tournaments and I was like, there's nothing here immersive. It's like just a foam block. And it just broke my heart. It really did. Um, and I just went, I need people to see in color, like they're playing in black and white and they should be playing in color. And that's when I bought my first 3D printer. And from then on, I was like, I want to elevate the standard of what tables look like. Um, and the one time I will toot my own horn is when I, I do say, I think NashCon has the best tables of any uh, Age of Sigmar tournament in the country. Now, that's not that's Holy a, Wars. Uh, that, yeah, that's not Holy Wars. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to say, <laughs> Herner's tables are ridiculous, uh, but he has fully integrated built boards. We are just have you know, table terrain, but that is also, I only print them. David does 99% of the painting. So David is the master that makes them look amazing. Uh, but yeah, I think that's what, what really sets us apart. And, uh, and like they were saying, the people um, I brought now that I, I live in North Carolina, it's a, you know, a almost eight hour drive back over to Nashville. Um, I convinced three people from my local scene who don't normally travel for tournaments to come over to NashCon play, hang out. When I got back, uh, they all said, like, this will now be on our yearly rotation. The people there were so amazing. It was such a good time. So many friendly people. Like, that's what you like hearing at the end of the day. Because I think the other, the other thing is there there, there aren't many um, – and maybe I should also add this, because I think one of the things that in, inspired me early on was that there were no – virtually no tournaments in the southeast United States. Like, they're – like like – it's obviously huge in the Midwest. There's a really good West coast scene. There's some Northeastern stuff going on as well. Um, but like the Southeast was just like, I think they went really heavily Kings of war um, when AOS came out. Um, and, and it was just like gutted from a, from a, from a, 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 an event standpoint. And so I was really kind of passionate about having something that was, you know, meaning a meaningful GT in this in this region and i think what's what was really exciting over the years is we've gotten more and more of like the regional players coming like we had a really strong contingent coming from like georgia had some people come from north carolina alabama um so anyway it, that that was something that, that was really cool and i think uh yeah it can just contribute to the health of the scene to get more and more players kind of from all over 
to, 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 to play in the same place. I've got a couple of questions that I want to pull out from chat because I think they're very good and very timely ones. And it's going to be interesting because um, I know the person who is asking these questions are very much uh, from a very purist when it comes to the tournament scenes. And I know um, from a NashCon perspective, you're not trying to – correct me if I'm wrong, this is my perspective – is it tournament NashCon is not trying to create a tournament that is trying to define the best of the best. It is not trying to be a LVO style tournament. You are, you are catering to the competitive people. You clearly want to award prizes for, you know, first, second, third, as well as like, you know, best in faction and things like that. But you're also catering to the, the middle, the fat middle. It's the people who are giving up their two days of their weekend. They want to roll dice. They want to win more than they lose. They want to show off their hobby. They want to have some good games. They want to meet some new people. So um, that's my perspective and why even like one of the very first experiences I had looking into NashCon all those years ago was you introduced secondaries before Games Workshop really introduced oh, secondaries. Yeah. You had those 19, um, we, we now call them auxiliary objectives from second edition, but you had, I think, 19 agenda cards and you would randomly draw as seven of them and, 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 and each player would have seven different agendas that they would have to achieve. And um, that, from a competitive point of view, is like a red flag. It's like, whoa, wait a second, everyone's not on the same playing field. But that's kind of not the audience you're going for. You are trying to cater for the fat middle, but still help either side, right? The most competitive, but also the people who are going to be bottom tables. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I, I think to a degree. I think uh, I, I my own I, I personally am like a very competitive person. Like I, I actually I, I like feel very strongly about the competitive like war, AOS in general. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. So I, I kind of push back a little on the notion that it's not a competitive tournament because there are there's like some really top level com competition and I would say that the the schemes back in the day like brought out the most competitive people because you're 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 given like a set of objectives that like you couldn't plan for so you, it was only based on your skill basically to be able to get it to to, to, to do it. Um, when I but, say when I say competitive yeah. though, like I just want to define when I say competitive, I not mean like we're all like ha hang around in a circle and like we all make up a story of who wins and who loses. <laughs> it's more that it's more like the the uh, the rules is written type tournament where we play yeah. very strict, very this is how the game is defined. There is no no rule flexibility, no manipulation. It's it's who can win within this very defined parameter. That totally true. It's completely agree. So I'm I'm definitely in the in like the D and D mindset of like these are rules, not guide. These are guidelines, not rules. Kind of type type thing. Like 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 there are basically some things that you can bend a bit. Like and and I'm okay with that. And right. I mean, I think every tournament. I think there. I have no problem with like the by the book tournaments. I think they 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 should exist. That there's a reason why the book has rules for running tournaments. Right. Like that's you know. And there's a reason why ITC is set up like to to kind of give you a, like a blueprint for how to do your thing. Right. Um, and those should be a thing. And there should also be plenty of room in the scene to do kind of more unique and varied uh, formats uh, that give people different options. Right. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, in, in that regard, we certainly uh, do scoring. Uh, like our scoring is, you know, uh, maybe a little bit different than like typical ITC. Um, it, uh, you know, we did, we do layer in 
um, pretty heavily uh, um, the soft scores or your, your hobby scores. So your sports and your paint, your coolest army, um, because I think those aspects of the hobby are just as important as what, what you roll dice for. Right. And so I want to reward that, um, you know, commiserately. I think the, uh, but we also, we, we do full on like only gaming awards as well. We have best general. Um, so, you know, trying to reward all aspects of the hobbies and, and give out enough awards that you have lots of, lots of things to go to shoot for. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I just want to reinforce, I'm not saying that it's not competitive. You do have great yeah. players. People are still wanting to go five and no, they still want to do the best that they can, but there is also flexibility and I guess storytelling and narrative. Cause you know, like if I was to look at some of the tables and this is not a criticism, please don't take this as a criticism. You look at some of the tables and you go, you know, th they might be a bit light when it comes to line of sight blocking, which is, is, is not the pure definitive. Like I want to have, you know, uh, yeah, the different parts of the, the, the terrain map, I guess. Um, but anyway, like it's, it's, it's what, where I wanted to go with the question I wanted to ask you was the first thing I wanted to ask was around um, the policing of, the two list format is that difficult to kind of make sure that everyone's at least done their their two lists at least once through the five gamer it's a it's an honor system yeah. uh so we, we don't police it uh honestly i have better things to do than to do that yeah. you're, <laughs> you're an adult you paid your money to come play yeah hopefully you're you're uh adhering to to that kind of standard and i've yet to hear anybody that hasn't played their their second list uh at least you know in a game uh no one seems to complain about it and, and if you're on the top tables um generally we're seeing the lists that are being played right and so yeah. we can tell like if someone's played the same list every game you know i mean it, it's not i mean it's one of those things that it's it's in the pack uh and we expect people to abide by it but i'm not going to come over your shoulder and we don't have any kind of like retroactive like logging during during a round by round um, just because there's already so much to track. Yeah, I'm not a bookkeeper. Sorry. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass to do. Um, oh my God. Actually, no, another interesting question. I, I I have a thought on this one, Robert, asking why do TOs make a, bunch, a billion prizes but use arbitrary secondaries? Why not just award five wins, four wins, three wins without trying to yeah, like push that kind of stuff further? Um I, I think we're all going to be on the same page on this one. It's because it gives more people a chance to win more prizes, not solely based on wins. Okay, I didn't win a single game, but I killed the most generals out of all of my games. I get a prize. It just I, I still have something to play for. I'm still included, even though I, I, I'm not winning all my games. Yeah, I, I, that, that's exactly right. I think we, we offered this year, we, so this year and the last year, we had, um, uh, scoring that was tied to the the uh the battle pack um so it's kind of like the things that you got that were that were in that season basically so like this year we rewarded uh bounty hunters that killed galician veterans so if you killed with if with your bounty hunters you killed more galician veterans you killed the most over the course of the tournament you got a prize like that has nothing to do with winning your games <laughs> and actually if you if you have a bunch of bounty hunters and you see a bunch of like galician veterans and you're like not in any hopes of, of getting near the top tables you're like oh boy <laughs> i get to go kill some galician veterans and not worry a damn thing about these these objectives so it's like a fun thing to like incentivize right um same with like killing the generals we have an assassin award it's all about killing generals um so if you play if you play an army that has lots of generals and you're not in contention you can just like focus all your time doing that right um, so yeah, it's exactly what Anthony said. It, it's basically incentivizing, giving people something to play for, 
if they're not playing for the top tables. I mean, we had a, a player last year when it was based around monsters, really, and we had the Monster Slayer Award, who killed the most monsters. He was on the, the you know the bottom row tables. He had one win. But when he saw the lists he was up against in round five, he's like, oh, yeah, adding to my total. This, this, he was so elated that he killed like 15 monsters over yeah, five games monsters. that he got an award for that. He was happier than a pig and poo. And like that kept him engaged in the entire tournament. There was no chance of him dropping day two because he was already racked up a bunch of monster kills in day one. Yeah. He wanted that prize. And we, but we also come- do award the other guys, right? So the other te- the oh, other awards yeah. do do still happen, right? So it's not like we're excluding. It's not like a like a, a mutually exclusive thing, right? You can have both. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Like the way I try to think about the way I run my tournaments is that there is a small percentage, you know, let's say ten to twenty percent. I'm pulling this number out of the backside, but there's about twenty percent of people who come to my tournament with the goal of wanting to win the event. They want to get maximum scores for the the Masters or the ITC, and they're going to do everything possible. And the twenty percent are gunning for first, second, third, or best in faction at best. Yep. You have probably a good sixty to seventy percent of people who are coming to your tournament who just want to win more games than they lose. They want to meet new people. They want to play with their war dollies and just have fun. Yep. And and for me, it's those people that I want to grow because they're the ones that are going to come back. They're going to tell their friends. And they're the people who are more likely to drop if they have a bad experience. So for me, what I want to do is I want to grow the fat middle because the competitive people will always come. Yep. They will always come. If your event's big enough and my event is now like 100 players, I might be even looking at expanding to like 140 next year. They'll come because there's maximum points on table. But it's that fat middle that are telling the stories. They're having fun. And it's those types of people that I want to reward because very early on in my tournament organizer career, I would give all of the prize money to the winners. Yeah. And then I had an epiphany. I'm like, wait a second, getting the trophy, getting the ranking points, getting the the accolations of like you know being the best whatever player you are that's that is, that's the reward you don't need to start collecting box of an army that either you don't care about you'll flip it on the buy and sell literally the next day you won't appreciate it but i tell you what the person that went two and three killed the most monsters and you award them a monster slayer award and you give them a prize they'll certainly appreciate that award they'll go tell their friends and family and they'll come back next year with their other people, even though they went two and three. That's exactly right. And also, so on that on the note of prize support, I think the thing we did we did we did different this year, and it was like my favorite way to give out prizes that I've done is we basically we, we had a pretty decent haul of 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 of, of box of, 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 of uh, model support basically for for prizes, and we basically in round five went and did like a random number generator and came up with a bunch of. Uh, and just rolled rolled up tables and went and had the people at the table roll off and whoever whoever won got the prizes <laughs> so it was like completely not tied to any awards it was just giving people who attended the event something cool and actually the people rolling against each other it was it was pretty funny too we also did it with like yeah. random stuff like like jacob barry's wife made nashcon cookies and we also <laughs> gave those away at the table and made people roll off for them it was amazing like it was just it was a yeah. really fun thing to do i think that people really like like appreciated Mind you, I still do like, you know, first, second, third, best, best in 100%. Grand Alliance, you know, the, the, the top type things that we would normally do. But at the same time, I do like them. One of the, my favorite awards is the Marco Colombo Award, um, which is an award based off the old explorer in Warhammer Fantasy Battles, Marco Colombo. 
not 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 America's Marco. Sure, sure, sure. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the, the fantasy battles guy. Because yeah. I want to reward the person who travels the furthest. If you've traveled like fun. hundreds of kilometers to come to my event, it's a bit of fun. But yeah. that's fun. I think it's that's the tournament I want to run. I agree. And and I if we were to keep to to put a pin on the on the prize support thing, that's another thing that I did from the very beginning with Nashcon is basically uh, as part of the convention, I get like a certain relatively small percent of each ticket sale that I'm allowed to allocate to prizes. And from the beginning, I kind of identified, I think, I think I may have stole this also from face hammer or stole it from someone who did it, but these engraved weapons that are, they're actually like legitimate weapons. Um, and, and uh, I found a guy or I found like a company in, in the U S that does um, relatively affordable um, uh, kind of in, engravable weaponry of different kinds. Most of like swords, a couple axes, stuff like that. And basically engraving in the, the award in, 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 in that weapon and giving those out as, as prizes. So instead of kind of like your plaques or your like ribbons or whatever, um, which are fine, like totally cool. I love my Adepticon medals. Those are freaking sweet. Um, but like ha- nothing's kind of cooler and says you're like a mega nerd gamer than like hanging up a sword on your wall. yes gareth that's exactly why i'm coming to the lvo i'm i'm coming because i want the marco colombo award that doesn't exist at lvo but (laughs) uh (laughs) but like no but like yeah like i think i think i asked you an earlier question and it's what's the event that i want to run and i think that that really is the part of my decision tree is is what is it i want to run and who are the types of people i'm trying to attract and then how do I bring it to life through the players pack, through the gaming experience, through the awards that I want to run, through the incentive structure of like, am I awarding the, the top players based off battle tactics and grand strategies? Is it kill points? Is it, you know, is it the gap between the loss and the victory and the victory, you know, like, and based on like what I'm trying to do will ultimately feed down to how I run the event and I guess bring it to life. So um, I guess that's kind of like, well, how do you bring what you've just told me to, to life when it comes to NashCon, whether it's through the players pack on the table during the day, like, how do you bring this to life? Oh boy. Anthony, I've been doing a lot of talking. You want to, do you want to take this one and I'll jump so, in? I mean, uh, the event we want to run is having a great time with friends. So, and we both like all aspects of the hobby. So it's not just the competitive nature. We obviously like the hobby aspect. David's a fantastic painter. His armies are amazing. So, you know, we always want to encompass everything. Um, so you have the top awards for the people that, that come for the competitive stuff. We've got the, uh, you know, best general, second, second, third. You've got the best in factions. You've got the overall for someone who encompassed the overall hobby. And then you've got the random stuff for the people that just come to have fun. And, uh, we haven't really had any complaints about uh, people not having fun at, at any NashCon I've been to, and I've uh, been to them all. So it's it, people come far and wide, and it, the list keeps getting longer and longer of people that want to attend. Um, and I think now we're in semi-post-COVID world. Uh, it's it's not going to be hard to to have a sellout of an event. I think when 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 you're getting at like how to how to bring it to life so i think you know obviously there's a lot of components that go into that i think obviously the pack is is one um that was that was one where um and and trying to be really 
intentional about what goes into the pack and kind of how it influences, you know, the the way that you um, the what what you expect going into the tournament. Uh, now, if we could just get people to read the damn thing, <laughs> no, no, be, no, 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 we don't do that. Excellent. Um, but but you know, we do we do spend. I think I think I think I spent uh, uh, I spent a decent amount of time kind of uh, putting the pack together and putting it in like a like a graphically designed format to where it's actually like easy to read and like it's like you know put in like sections and i don't know i have a design background so it's a little bit i kind of i'm able to kind of pull it port that over into into the pack uh just formatting which i think is i i, don't know, I personally geek out over it um and and i think figuring out again like we were saying like bring it to life i think a lot of it is around how you set up your scoring so when you're when you're saying you know what how many points do you get for a minor loss minor win major major loss major win how many points do you get for uh painting awards so this so we we do a a small number of points if you get a painting nomination so we we nominate the top 10% of the field uh to get a painting nomination um and so and they get i think a very small number of points and it it, it raises in scale the higher you get so 1 2 3 get a decent amount of points and a nomination gets a smaller amount um, we also uh, award a tournament point to anybody who gets a best game vote. Um, so like if, if, if you get a best game vote, no matter it, it, it's, it's capped at one. Um, it, but, um, you, you basically, you get an extra point. So it incentivizes people to give people good games because obviously if you're a really competitive player, every point counts. Right. And so it, it makes you want to, to give people good games. Um, it's only one, only one point, right? Only one point, so it's it's very it's very minimal in this game in, this, in the grand scheme of things. But you never know when that one point will pip you over the next person, right? I mean, there's plenty of instances where, where one point has been the deciding factor, and especially like best in alliance, grand alliance awards, right? This was um, also a slight mix up in reading the pack, where David and I just took for granted we had it right in there, and we meant to give whoever actually won got the most. Uh, uh, best opponent votes a couple more tournament points, but we forgot to put that in the pack when we finally put it to print. So we were like, it's fine. It is what it is. That'll go in next year. It's fine. It does. That's the other thing is continuous improvement, right? Yep. It's like your first, your first tournament may not go great. And it may not be perfect. Right. And, and the, the thing is like doing a kind of postmortem afterwards and figuring out, you know, what could be better uh, looking around at what the rest of the, of like your, what the rest of the community is doing um, and figuring out like what you can, Port over and and use for your your event, but the other thing is like what is your what did you do well and what did what could use improvement right? Every year we have feedback on things that could go a little bit differently, things that that maybe people have opinions about, you know, how they would like to see things done, and we take a look at those and say like you know does it kind of align with our you know standard and what we want to stand for right? Uh, and like one of the things I think you brought up, uh, you you brought up is. Um, uh, growth, like ha- like growing year over year. I think um, I think I'm I'm in the position now where I like the size of the event. I don't really care to to like. It's not in my like. I'm not trying to compete with Adepticon LBO. Like it's you know like there's a time and place for 300 person tournaments and those are awesome. Like I I can't wait to go to Adepticon next year. Like I'm psyched for it. But I don't personally want to run an event that big. You know, yeah. and so so kind of where me and Anthony are at now is how do we just raise the bar of quality for the field that we have now, right? So it's like we had 96 players we had, with drops, it was less. Um, but 
so it's like we have 96 we're gonna cap it at 96 and let's make this 90 the the, the, the kind of experience for those 96 people the best experience we can yeah it's a really good call out because i think you know it's easy to fall in the traps of just growing 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 but at what cost you know do you have the battle mats the terrain do you have the people yeah. to support and if you don't have the assistance and the people who can help you run the event then you're going to be completely stretched running the tournament doing uh painting checks uh getting involved in table disputes and you know getting involved and in just generally running the event because once the once the event's happening you know like a lot of the work for the to happens before the event on the yep. day you're the event planner you're just making making sure that things run smoothly things are running to time you know you can handle any disputes but for the vast majority a lot of the things are up front and yep. um and it's great to hear like i think the key is like well what what am i able to take on um well, yes i can get sell more tickets which means more money into the event but are we going to be asked to ask in in the hall well, um, is that the event that I want to run? Like, you know, back to back, bumping into each other, <clears throat> laneways are crowded, can't yeah. run particular missions because there's not enough space. Well, no, that's not what I want to run. One of the big things, too, is uh, if you think you're going to be a TO and make money doing that, uh, newsflash, <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, uh, that's, that's not how it works. Uh, second, I have been, and I'll admit, I've been pushing David to break away from the convention, go solo, let's get 150 players. I know we can do it. And he's been like, nah, dude, that's not where we want to go. Now we're going to go. And then, you know, this year I really realized he's right for a couple reasons. Uh, the biggest one being, where do we store 96 tables worth of terrain? Because it's not just flat pieces of styrofoam we're storing, right? There's some sizable terrain on these tables. And this is also why I don't go to visit David's house because I'm afraid of his wife because, you know, <laughs> I've taken up three quarters of David's, you know, spare room in his house with terrain for NashCon. Um, I keep, you know, a dozen tables at my house. We've got other people that are storing at their house, um, you know, so yeah. mats are the same way. I mean, there's a lot of storage alone that goes into running an event. Yeah, my, my is, garage it? is full of battle mats and terrain, and I've had yeah. to buy, like, multiple storage, um, like, cabinets yep. just to yep. store all the terrain. I'm now at a point of inventory where each of the boxes has, you know, defined inventory. This is my GER box. It's got this much, this much. And I think, Gareth, I just want to call out one good question that Gareth has kind of called out is, you know, if you want to grow your scene, if you want to kind of get big, it might not necessarily be just one tournament a year. You actually could run multiple events throughout the year. So if you miss your NashCon, your 60 player, yeah. well, maybe every six months you run a 30-man uh, event or you run a narrative component instead of the, the GT. And, you know, you, there's a lot of different ways of tackling this other than just this one Big Bang tournament a year. So it's a really good comment. Well, let's be I honest. Totally, totally agree. I mean, there is no shortage of events anymore anywhere in the world. You can find an event almost every weekend. And I know most, like I do, I know David still very much enjoys playing. So running just one, me, and then I still run one or two very small one-day events, you know, here or there to help out around uh, my local scene. But then I can go out and play. I don't have to always be doing the TOing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's especially great for, for communities that are building uh, like, like communities that are kind of in a growth pattern to do like smaller, more frequent events. Cause you're able to kind of capitalize on players who may be new or maybe building their armies and like 
you you lower your paint requirements down you like you're you're able to your your goal is to just get people on the table playing games right and so like and, and so like you don't necessarily need to have you're not trying to aim for like 50 to 100 people you're aiming for like 20 to 30 and and like getting people in games and, and also getting used to playing tournaments right because there's nothing yeah. scarier than going from like ground zero to like a hundred people and you can get super overwhelmed yeah it's a good comment i know i know i'm already thinking about running something when the new general's handbook goes live so at the same yeah. time of lvo we have cancon which is australia's well, it's actually been the world's largest event it's 240 players the current record um but there's nothing in the diary because it's christmas time in december right so to run a big event in, in december is just asking for trouble yeah. That how do I get some practice between LVO slash CanCon? Well, I'm going to look at maybe running something, you know, no painting requirement, something where we can kind of learn the new general's handbook and the new framework so that we're prepared for the next GT. And the last time I did this, which was the introduction to third edition, I had 70 players. I had a 70 yeah. players for a, for for an introduction to GBH20 to, to wow. third edition. It was crazy. That's amazing. That, that that happens to us every year in Nashcon. The, they just the, to win due to when they release the new GHBs now is like it happens right before Nashcon. It's like two weeks. Like years. So yeah. it's like always like all right, here it goes wild last time. Yeah, David and I are sitting over there. Okay, what rulings do we have to make this weekend? Yeah, it does make rulings a challenge sometimes. Well, well, you've actually got a question that I wanted to ask you because as. As a TO last year, it was a lot easier for me because Battle Tomes weren't coming out as frequent yeah. and they they had a an FAQ period of two weeks. Do you remember the good old days when books were <sighs> FAQ'd two weeks after release? Oh, my God. Now yeah. we're in a point where it's four weeks, four to five weeks approximately now, mm. um, and books are dropping like, like it's crazy the amount of books that are dropping right now. How, as a tournament organizer, do you handle that? Do you ban people from using non-FAQ'd books? Do you house rule? Do you, like, how do you guys tackle it? Yeah, I, I would say if there's anywhere that personally me as, as a TO can improve for next year, it will be in that area. I've had a lot, like, in my personal life, like, I had a baby and new job. And so, so I, I had a lot of stuff I couldn't, like, focus on the rules side. And I'd make a lot of rulings on the table and probably didn't do as good of a job as I could have um, because I wasn't as prepared, right? It, I think it's tough. I don't I don't have a great answer for this one. I, I think um, I, to some degree, you have to have a little bit of grace and have to and hope that you're, the players at the table kind of can roll with you a little bit because – you know, there's just a lot to, to understand, right? That I would argue that this GHB is one of the more complicated of any of them, if not the most, um, uh, with all the stuff kind of in 3.0 in general has a lot more going on than the, than the other um, uh, editions. And then the, the, the books coming out at the pace they're coming out, it's hard to keep up. Um, and so uh, I think generally what my advice would be try to, to keep up as much as possible. Um, if you can't do it, then try to have somebody have a helper who keeps up better than you do. And that's why Anthony's <laughs> here. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of no FAQ, no play. I don't like that idea because if someone only plays one army, that's their army. They've always had, if you're a gets player and all you play is gets and the book drops tomorrow. Well, no, you can't come to the tournament because that now you can't play the army that you play. I don't like that idea. I maybe controversial take here is I think GW is doing a better job than ever of actually writing books to where there's only 
one or two minor things that are like this could kind of be a little iffy in the uh, the way it interacts. Um, so most people know about that ahead of time, and I I monitor you know a lot of the Facebook groups and I monitor Twitter and you know and then my local community has you know a, a fair amount of uh, competitive players that travel around so I keep an ear to all that stuff and I'll make notes about it and think about it and I'll send them over to David like hey David we should talk about these couple things and put them like this year we put a couple things in the pack ahead of time and said hey barring GW dropping an FAQ which luckily they did before our uh, Nashcon these are how we will rule these specific things that we know are the, the biggest things people are talking about. Anything else that you can think of, email us and we'll, you know, try to nip it in the bud ahead of time. Yeah. It, it was funny. We did that. And then like a week later, they actually released the, the actual GW ruling. And I was like, God, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I agree with Anthony. I, I think the, um, the, uh, I don't. I'm not a fan of not allowing non-FAQ books. I think you you gotta let players play with the player with the with the rules that are most up to date and just make be prepared to make rulings on the spot um, based on your understanding of the game and kind of what you think is the best like like ruling to make. Yeah, I I initially like very early on in my TO career back when it was a two a two week FAQ drop. I was very much in a no FAQ no play. Sure. That was how I was. Now that it was four and five, and I'll never forget Daughters of Cain. The Daughters, I don't know if you remember this, but Daughters of Cain, their, their most recent book was eight weeks. Oh. Yeah. It was eight week delay. Them and uh, was it Nighthaunt? I think they were the dual yeah. battle time at the time. Yep. Eight weeks. So if I was somebody who had bought my ticket to Nashcon six weeks, so six months ago, I've been building, painting, putting so much effort into my army. And I happen to get a battle tome um, and then, or I pick up my army, I, I rush paint it and I just want to play with my, my new army. And yep. I mean, yeah. I should have got my battle tome. You said four weeks, you said four weeks post FA2 yeah. and you didn't bring it to me. How is that my fault? And I, right. now I need to go play a new army or like, no. like it's a bad experience. I think no. what you said is, is, is great. I think Games Workshop has been a lot better at, um, at their rulings. And what is broken seems to be very obvious. You know, perfect example was um, Daughters of Cain and Fire Slayers both had an ability to do a four-up rally. Okay, clearly that is for Daughters of Cain or Fire Slayers. You shouldn't be rallying yeah. four-up dragons as an ally. Right. Nope. Cool. <laughs> yeah, we're all in agreement. That's that's not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> it It's pretty obvious. You go onto Twitter, you go onto, you know, your competitive communities and you'll find the things that people like red flagging is that this is a concern. Yeah. Yep. Question from uh, Sigma Savage. I like this one because I recently just played a tournament who, who, who did this is how do you both feel not using battle time specific grand strategies or battle tactics? It's the only so, way I will play. Cut them out. Yep. I, I, I think, I think I, I feel pretty strongly about it. I, I, I don't think that they, I think just play with what's in the book. Don't, don't use the army specific battle tactics or grand strategies. I don't think they're balanced. Uh, I, I, and it levels the playing field when you're all using the same ones. Um, yeah, I think that that's it. I don't need to say, that's all I have to say about it. Yeah. That's the biggest <laughs> thing. Whether you have a new book or an old book, when you're just playing with the GHB ones, you all have access to the same ones and the ability to compete for the same ones. You don't have any shenanigans of I can do the same thing twice essentially because I have this 
faction one and I can do the generic one. No, it doesn't imply. I prefer just the, the GHB ones. Yeah. I like it. I actually just come back from last weekend, a tournament called Bathurst GT. And they were very specific early on in the, in the pack to say only the battle pack grand strategies and battle tactics are, were allowed. So no white dwarf, no, um, no uh, battle tomes. Um, and I scored 24 out of 25 battle tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great experience. Like I actually yeah. really enjoyed that. Everyone was on the same playing field and like daughters of Cain aren't getting the easy victories or gloom spike kits aren't on extremely hard mode because they literally have nothing. Um, yep. so, you know, yes, uh, armies aren't fair. It's not chess, but I don't mind that. And I think one thing you mentioned early on that I want to kind of double down and reinforce is communication is key is being very upfront to say, this is how we're going to be structuring um, the, the the wins and losses. And these are the, the trophies we're going to give out. This okay. is um, how we're going to handle books um, on their release cycle and um, what we're going to do if there's FAQs or no FAQs. Being very upfront, um, because the yeah. last thing you players want is something dropped on them literally weeks before the tournament goes live. Yeah, agreed. I think uh, communication is key in all aspects of life, really, uh, whether it's your professional, personal, and also in your tournaments. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think being transparent and communicative I think, is super important. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, I think and, and honestly, when we so we we awarded uh, we had a tactician award this year, um, which awarded the person who had the most battle tactic but didn't qualify for one of the other bigger awards, and we had lots of people who had like twenty three of like battle tactics like that they did a lot of of like the, yeah. they, they scored the majority of their battle tactics we had a couple of people think go 25 i mean like so like it's not impossible they're tough the battle tactics are much harder than they used to be but like which is not, also a good thing in my opinion yes, yes. Uh, and like i just want to be clear i'm not advocating that we should only play in battle pack the battle pack sure there's definitely like there's definitely rules and reasons to include them but there's no reason why you again the whole game has been about you know jigsawing and cutting and pasting if you don't want to use like i've seen tournaments go no to the cron spine okay if that's how you want to run the tournament cool you can can do what you want to do so long as you're very upfront and, and clear and you're not just specifically kind of targeting one faction one army uh just because of you've had a feel bad Two of these pictures that you have up now have a model on the table that david at the end of the tournament was like we should have outlawed that damn thing did you, see what I put in chat? Did you see what I put in chat just now? You beat me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Purple sun, you can go. You are no fun. I hate it. I honestly, it's like the, I've never considered banning a model, but I, I truly loathe it. Except for right. Croak. He wanted to ban Croak when I was playing. No, I didn't, that's not <laughs> No, that's just our friendly banter. But no, uh, yeah, purple sun needs, needs some. That's Work. a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, some tournaments have tried to handle this in the past. I think um, uh, one of the UK events, Carnage, I, I think, I can't remember what it's called. Um, I think they had said no to the cron spine. Um, I've seen some tournaments go no, no purple sun. Uh, I've seen people go specifically target certain units like um, uh, Got Trek um, at the time, couldn't, there was some rules around. And it's like, yeah. when I, I find once you start playing with picking on certain rules, you start opening up a can of worms because like, well, you picked on Got Trek, but what about Lumineth line of sight and, you know, making them ignore it? What about this? What about that? And then it just starts becoming a lot of biases and yeah. it's the game. Yeah. 
you played play to it as close to as possible to the game if something is just fundamentally broken or something that needs to be clarified like it took what, 18 months for like courage and overlords uh fly high to be clarified cool intervene but try to play yeah. the game i think as as close to it as possible um with your own tweak and 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 spin i agree i agree we, we generally try not to do uh, like a lot of comp um where yeah. we are we're really altering the what rule war scrolls say or points values and so we we haven't done that really um uh, but th th this this year after some experiences people had on the table we had some by drop because of purple sun and it was like it just sucks i just don't like seeing it it's irritating um but uh, and also imminently fixable <laughs> like it's like something that's like super it's like so so dumb but it's fine yeah i agree with you uh, like 100 percent yeah, I mean, but again, it goes back to what I said earlier on is like, what is the event that I'm trying to run? If I'm yeah. running a tournament, then you run with the chips on the table. It is the game is as is. Purple Sun is Purple Sun. Cronspine is Cronspine. All the feel bad stuff in the game that we don't like, it is what it is. But you yeah. know, then there are minor tweaks, like Gareth has said in the chat. Um, one of the Texas tournament Hammerfest that's happening this weekend. Um, they've gone back to the old rules of Purple Sun, where Purple Sun just did mortal <laughs> wounds yeah. as opposed to the on a roll of a one, it's just auto slain. So if you yep. see something that you know you want to comp, and again, you're very clear with it up front, this is the type of tournament, this is the experience we're trying to do. Again, yep. be very clear with it very early yeah. on. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, get cool. it out there ahead of time and people will be fine. Yeah. I want to talk about your tables, right? So one of the things that I've probably most enjoyed as a tournament organizer is, is the terrain. In it. And like, I keep showing different photos from the event um, and you've got some wonderful tables. Um, you could argue that some of them maybe aren't practical. Some of them might be too big or too small or like this, that you, like you, you, you run your tables, how you want to run the tables. I think one thing that's very clear with, with, with Age of Sigma at the moment is we could better define terrain. I think both the rules and like 40k has better rules and i think even just yeah we say there are eight pieces of terrain on the table on average but what's the size what's the depth how much you know there's there's a whole debate we could probably have but going back like how do you look at terrain how do you source terrain um do you have any advice when it comes to terrain like you guys put so much effort and thought and if i come to your tournament <laughs> I would have great photos of my games. I would I would have a wonderful experience because it's very thematical and like it's just very impressive. Yeah, I, I think that's that's always been the, the goal uh, of our kind of terrain is really a couple of things. So um uh one is like we want we want you to be immersed in in the game right so we want the you know age of sigmar is based on there is a there is a kind of a, a lore and like the world that you're that you're in right and these these armies are fighting supposedly you're fighting within a world right so we want to put you as much as possible into like immerse you into that event right and so um we want the terrain to reflect kind of what what you're doing um and and you know in like a real life battle, right? Your terrain isn't gonna be like perfectly square houses so that you can put your models up and like you know and stay in coherency, right? And so, part of it is like making it. I, I think of it from a competitive standpoint as like having to adapt to uh, kind of the unforeseen, right? And so, if you walk up to a table, we had some tables this year that were like 
horrific if you had a shooting army that needed a line of sight like they were just like we had one table in particular that we were literally like giggling as we were putting it together because it's like there was like it was so like like the all the lines of sight were just horrible and then the other tables that have very they're much more much more tame in terms of line of sight blocking and it's because it, you need some variation right you can't have every table be like terrible for line of sight because then your shooting armies are like well god i why did i even come um but you can't have every table at, like you know the opposite is also true right um I, I think um from an aesthetic standpoint i feel really strongly about painting i i really love i really really enjoy taking 3d prints or i do a lot of custom built stuff as well um and like spending a lot of time painting those basing them taking a look at like taking like inventory of what mats we have and saying like um you know here's what tables we need to make here's like our our forecast of tables we need to set up and and start building and um which is a different approach than we did kind of before when we were in like a, like a, like a rapid growth pattern early on. It was just like, how many pieces of terrain can I pump out like with grass on them? You know, like I'm, I'm going to like cut these bases, put like a foam core, like, like wall painted up and like flock it. And like, we're going to do like a, like 50 of them. And, and so it was like trying to get those built up. We've kind of transitioned to more like quality over quantity. Cause now we've built up the quality, the quantity enough um, that we can really focus on quality. Um, and then like, obviously there's the 3d printing part. I'm gonna let Anthony take all of that. Um, uh, but, uh, really, and that, that's really where, where it comes from, for me. I mean, I agree that we could probably use some more specificity in, in age of Sigmar around like terrain rules. Um, and, and I think with, with the table size shrinking, um, the way it did, it kind of put some of our terrain, it, it made some of our terrain seem even more oversized than it, it was in the past. There are some pieces that are like just enormous. And we did have to cut some, like I think there were some prints Anthony sent me that I was like, these these, these can never fit yeah. on a table. They're way too big. Um, and so we do push the boundaries a little bit on the on terrain size. Uh, uh, and, and I think you're, you have one picture up on screen right now, one of those um, like uh, Aztec, Aztec Seraphon uh you know pyramids right and that, that thing's huge uh it like, takes up a whole massive. quarter of the board I basically i printed that off I, I i have that file and i printed that off because it was going to be my centerpiece of my seraphony type tables and it was bigger than i expected and i i, I went whoa i was going to give it away as a prize because yeah. and like uh, there's an interesting challenge here that will probably lead into crazy horse is that there is a debate or a, i guess a, a line mm -hmm. of thinking between do I run a fair table? Do I run mm. variety? How do I create the tournament? You know, is every table going to be the same? And we have defined two large pieces that are, are 10 inches by seven inches we are by four inches. Right. You know, do you, do you define that much like the world's tournament with like player maps and where particular terrain pieces mm. go? do you go with variety that you know like at my, like my tables i've got well my gur table has these defined pieces but when you compare the gur table to my death tables they have some similarities but they're very different just because of the size of the terrain um like yeah and i guess it depends on again like what type of tournament you're trying to run and and the type of experiences you're trying to create so it's a i i don't think we have a defined perfect solution just yet no and i do think it, it depends on the kind of tournament you're trying to run right i think the ones that are trying your 
um, you're, you're, you're very competitive gaming focused tournaments probably could benefit more from being more homogenous or, or more standardized in the, in the terrain sets. I think there, there's, there's certainly probably a place for that uh, where you, you build your terrain within certain specifications and you, and you lay out your tables relatively similarly um, so that you're playing on like, and so every player kind of walks up to the table and has like a, you know, an idea that, that they don't feel like they got the short end of the stick because they lined up on one side of the table. At NashCon, I feel very strongly about non-standardized like layouts. Uh, you get what you get. I think it's it's a I think part of if you think of like real life strategy, right? In like a, like a, in like a like war games, right? Like you you're never gonna no no two armies have walked up to each other in a perfectly symmetrical like canyon and like fought each other right it's like there's always like terrain is always playing an impact and so learning how to like play around it and and be creative with how you play i think is part of the game so i feel really strongly about that but it's not for everybody and i fully like i appreciate that so it's it's all good and again it comes back to the top of the decision tree because like i've talked to gareth um a lot about about tournaments and i love what they do on the west coast and I think some of the things that I'm taking away from them for my next Sydney GT will be things like having functional terrain that still looks good, but I want to define it. I want to make sure that on every table, there are two pieces of impassable, at least one piece of wildwood. And there's going to be like, yeah, I, I know at least in Australia, we don't use those second set of rules nearly as much as we should. Like it's very rare that I play on a garrison, garrisonable terrain. Mm. Um, it's very rare that I have impossible and all of those things. Right. So, um, one thing that I'm ta- yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, impossible you know, like, isn't, but that's just one, one thing we, we added. I, I really like that, but we just don't play I with agree. it. And I think as a tournament organizer, um, I can better define it. I'm certainly taking those ideas off the West coast, but I want to kind of get some of your thoughts around like terrain and how you kind of, how can I level up my, my, my tables if I'm a, a, a aspiring TO or I'm, you know, I want to expand. Give me some thoughts. Find somebody who throws more money than brains at the, the problem and uh, start with a, a single 3d printer. You can crank out a fair amount of terrain with a single Ender three style small printer that runs 24 seven with a material that is relatively inexpensive and can produce quality. You know, it's not printing display display quality stuff, but it's printing stuff that on a table, when you're looking at it, looks amazing. Prints up with a dry brush or paints up with a dry brush real quick, real nice and, and makes uh, some stunning models. Um, I, as far as terrain on a table, I don't like standardized at all. I don't like the every table has this L and that L and this flat and that hill and that's boring as all get out to me. Um, there, there's probably a place for it and that's fine. My personal taste, I don't like it. Um, I like the variety. I like the different sizes. I like the fact that on a couple of tables, if you have Archeon, he could technically have line of sight blocking without any additional rules being added to the terrain just because the terrain is that large. Um I, I did message David after the event um, because we didn't put defined roles on terrain this year. Um, and I th- that's one thing where I think we could improve next year, where um, I think because so many of the pieces could be potentially garrisonable, um, instead of making our uh, players, we for this year, last year, we said pretty much talk to your opponent ahead of time, use your best judgment, 
you all agree, uh, where we can say, okay, there is now the mechanic for attacker defender. All of our terrain is set up from the get-go. Our terrain never leaves the table. Nudge it if you need to put your faction terrain in. We're cool with that. All of our terrain has mysterious terrain markers already set out on it. Leave those where they are. But maybe next year I, I talked to David about whoever is the defender, they get to pick two garrisonable, two impassable. Note those. And then the attacker will get to choose sides and go from there. Just to, I think that's one thing I, with some of the feedback we got this year that we could improve for next year uh, on that front. Yeah, I think I think um, we well, I think I, I agree that we could probably do more to s- specify, you know, um, what counts as impact. Well, first of all, impassable needs to be better defined by GW. <laughs> like in terms of like a, like a broad rule. Right. Um, but uh, you know, specifying like what could be counted as, is impassable. Right. So like if it's a, over a certain height, if it's five inches tall or, or higher, like it's impassable or something, you know what I mean? Like, like this as an example. And so uh, that being a blanket rule, um, agree, yeah. Agreed on garrisoning. Like I had it, like, I think because we preset all of our tables, it makes the attacker defender much less of like a, there's much less interplay in that part yeah. of the game. Um, and so, you know, there's probably more work we could do there. And it's part of the feedback loop that we talked about. Like as, as you complete a tournament, like what could you do better? That's probably something we could do better. Um, but I coach, know. just look, so, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please continue. Well, I want to make sure I fully answered your question. Cause I think you also, part of your question was like, if we were talking to other TOs or, or aspiring TOs, like how would you let level up your pain, your, your terrain games? That, that part, was that also one of your questions? Yeah. Yeah. Because we talked so much about the importance of terrain. And if I'm uh, running a small event at the moment, or I'm an FLGS, or if I'm, I'm going, how do I improve my terrain? What's the, what's the lessons here from Nashcon? Because I hear so much, raving feedback and you put so much effort into the terrain yeah yeah so i I think i think um i i certainly i mean to to say uh to say that you need a 3d printer is probably that's probably not fully realistic and it is realistic don't listen to this man he's a heretic but all people don't have access to a to a, a, a friend with a 3d printer right or True. or their own 3d printer right and some people are on a budget and have to and have to like do terrain in in what way they can right and that would that would be that would define me kind of like early on in my nashcon days right and i don't think i was getting a lot of like accolades for my terrain like in the first nashcon <laughs> but it was like but i think there are like really so some pointers right some so th- some things that i think make good terrain um first is basing your terrain so you can see in the pictures you have on screen right now having having like like footprints for your terrain pieces it helps define where that thing sits in in space also helps people put models and get cover bonuses right so even if you have like a a building that you normally would have a hard time putting like models on top of if it's based on top of something you could put models around the rim and basing material is super super cheap like you can buy i don't know what they call it in australia but hardboard is something that is what they call it in the us um it's basically I think it's like $8 for a six foot by four foot sheet. So you get with one of those sheets, you can do like, I don't know, like five tables worth of, ter- of terrain yeah. at least um, uh, in bases. So that's, that's one. I think that that's, and it's really pretty easy. I think that, that the, the entry level on that's pretty easy. You need, you probably need like a, um, a jigsaw to cut it. Um, the other one is there, there's plenty of like relatively affordable, like, like terrain materials, like, 
a lot of your like hardware stores carry insulation foams. They're like hard like insulation foams that you can buy, could chop up into into like rock rocky looking forms or walls or anything, and you can make relatively realistic looking pieces with a little bit of effort. Um, also, you can go buy in bulk. Amazon has like giant bags of trees you can go buy. Like I, you can buy like a bag of like. 50 palm trees for like $12 or something. Uh, and so like, and there you go. Right. So you make, so all of a sudden you can, so you can and all, and then, you know, the other, the other like components are like sand. Cause you gotta put, you, you know, put texture on your, on your, on your uh, bases. You can buy a bag of sand for like $5 and it'll last you your whole life. Um, and then uh, things like flock can get kind of expensive. You can find really cheap alternatives. Um, the other one is, painting so when we come down to painting for terrain people ask me this all the time like how do you <laughs> afford how do you paint the terrain that you have like there's so much terrain if you came to nashville i've painted probably like 75 to 80 percent of everything on there and i just I'm, assume I'm, like you got like mechanicus gray and you've got like sterling mud and like i assume like you're null oiling everything i don't wash anything so my first, my first, my first thing, I, I use zero washes on terrain. I refuse. It's the most expensive way to paint terrain. I, I, like I disagree. I so disagree with that okay. because, because, um, if you go onto YouTube and like look at dungeon craft or you go to, um, the terrain tutor, they show you how you can make uh, like a black or okay. a brown wash True. with, with, um, acrylic ink with a bit of, yeah. um, like it's so easy to make and it makes a huge difference for me. I, I, I wash everything. Don't. But I don't I, use GW wash. I clearly do okay. not null oil my terrain, but I make my own homemade wash. So that maybe I should have clarified using GW shades oh, for terrain. Did. I would never ever do that. I have I have watered down acrylic paints and like use those to get into shades. So I, I should have clarified that. My bad. Yes. Uh, but people ask me like, so did you like coat it in like agrax? I'm like, hell no. Like, <laughs> like, no. Like, like no. But I think I think the big thing is um I two things I recommend for painting terrain. Um, the first is if you can go to your, um, your hardware stores usually carry camouflage paint. So it's paint used to paint camo. Um, it's a very specific kind of rattle can, but it's, but it's basically, and you get that it's the most matte you'll buy anywhere. Um, it's like, it, cause it's like, so it's meant to be camouflage paint. So you can't have it shining. Right. Um, it's maybe like a dollar more expensive than your normal rattle can. It's usually extremely like uh, uh, it coats really well. It's it's like coverage is really strong, um, it, which is great for and it's a little bit thicker. Um, so it fills in those lines on your 3D prints. Um, it's great. Like it's it's like the best stuff. Um, so that's my first thing. I usually base coat with camouflage paint um, and they come in your like standard like like earthy colors. Right. Because that's camouflage. Right. They have like sand uh, like dark green, uh, brown and black. So like the colors you want to base coat your, your terrain with anyway. Yeah. Um, so that's like, that's number one. Number two is craft acrylic paint. Like you can buy it pretty cheap. Any, any craft store, you just mix it up. You basically get your, you get white, brown, yellow, black, and that will probably cover you for like 90% of your painting, right? Like, cause you can just mix them together and make all the colors you need. Um, buy them in the big tubes. You can get a big tube for like $5 and, It'll last you a long time. The great thing about acrylic paint, the, those, the craft acrylic paint is, again, if you're using 3D prints, but even if you're not, it fills in those gaps because you're like, you, you dry brush it in and it starts, it, it, you build up layers basically. And um, yeah, and it's just a matter of kind of like when I go to paint like a, a table, I usually do a table at a time. 
and I'll have everything base coded and I'll just go in and I just, if I'm doing like a level up from, uh, for Brown, I'll go in with my, my like dark Brown base coat and then just gradually mix in um, yellow and white into Brown. And, and, and by the end, my last mix is mostly yellow and white. And it's my, it's my highlight. And I can do a table pretty quickly um, just by sticking with the craft, mixing craft acrylic paints. So those, also, those, are, those are really my recommendations for like, if you're an entry level TO kind of trying to get in, there's a, there's a lot of cheap ways to make terrain. You don't need to be intimidated um, by price point really. Cause it's not, that shouldn't be a huge barrier. If you have access to a 3d printer, obviously that's the way to go. Like that's, that's like, that is kind of like, that's what's leveled up the NashCon terrain like period. But um, anyway, that's, that's, that's kind of my recommendations. I hope that kind of answers your question, coach. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say, though, uh, I was having a conversation with uh, Crazy Horse just before we went live, and I was saying that one of the things that – so first off, I agree with you 100% when it comes to um, basing your your terrain. That was a, a piece of feedback that I got in my second year is I was 3D printing a lot, but I wasn't basing them nearly as much. And there yeah. were some discussions around um, – you know, like where is areas of effect and it probably wasn't as clear as it should be. So I took that on the chin and, you know, the, the my latest tournament, I had gone and based like all of my, my pieces. But one thing that I had done that I fell in love with when I noticed the photos from the Games Workshop open was that they had used clear acrylic on, oh, yeah. uh, for their bases because one of the things that kind of grinds my gears is when terrain basing doesn't match the mat. And that's just one extra thing I don't want to worry about when I'm trying to set up a terrain and like where goes what. Like it's not worth it for me. Yeah. So for speed and for just having the aesthetic, I went with clear um, acrylic sheets and cut it down with a jigsaw and you know shaved off the edges, much like you did. Um, to, to, so it means that any piece of terrain matched any mat. But yeah, I agree with you 100% what you just shared. I love the I love the clear clear acrylic. I think that's a that's a great solution. I when I saw that, I don't know who did it first. It may have been you. Um, I I was like, oh man, love that idea. It's, it's, it's well, great. I, well, I saw GW do it with the. Uh, it might have been like Chuck Moore who did it with the the Azerite ruins. Because I'm yeah. like, well, if I've got two ruins and I'm trying to like show off a, ha a collapsed house or whatever it might be, yeah. Well, where exactly is the areas of effect? Yep. And and if it's scattered a little bit, then you know, it creates tension at the table. And I'm like, cool. I'm gonna, but it also allowed me to standardize it. So they go, right, well, I know that the the size of that piece of terrain is, I think I did seven inches by six inches is the kind of square that I kind of cut so that at least all my Azerite runes are standardized on that size. And I think it's probably one thing I want to do a bit more of is have a bit more standardization. Um, still means that I can print a whole bunch of whatever I want, but it means people have an expectation that on the table there'll be at least two large pieces, four medium pieces, and two or four minor pieces. Yeah. Maybe I'm crazy. I hate standardized. I like it all random sized. Give me <laughs> random sized bases. Good to go. I, I will say, I will say, like I they, they all make fun of me on the, the night before the tournament. Um, like uh like on Friday night, I'm always like the I'm super like controlling about how the tables look prior. Um I spend a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time. I just carry a beer around and like move terrain pieces around like I'm like a weirdo. Um, but like I I uh I do. I think the general feel that I, I kind of have like a like a it's kind of just like a feeling, right? Where you kind of get the balance of the table, right? And usually it is like two to three 
decent sized pieces of terrain. A lot of times they're line of sight blocking. And then like uh, a handful of other like mid to small size pieces. It's usually not a table of all big or all small, right? There's 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 usually a mix there, but I don't hold myself to like a hard and fast rule. Yeah. Uh, real quick, I'll say for terrain for events, if you're starting out an event, uh, if you don't have access to a crazy person who 3D prints like it's going out of style, I put out a call to, to a bunch of friends or other TOs in, in the area. I can't tell you how many events I've gone to that are within three or four hours of me that I've shown up and I'm like, these tables, like, I'll never say anything to them because I want them to, to have good, but I'm like, these tables are trash. Um, and I wish they had just reached out to me. I would have, I keep, like, I now have 12 tables worth of terrain in my garage. I would have gladly brought that and matching mats and let them borrow them just so that people could have a slightly, you know, better experience on, of table terrain personally. Um, so don't be afraid to, to ask around for help. Um, and then I agree with David on not washing terrain, especially if it's 3D printed, because I think it brings out more of the layer lines. I think you're better off with just a good dry brush and it hides more of it. And when you dry brush, go more angular than straight up and down because it'll catch every little ridge. I, I agree with uh, – that's a really good point, asking for help. I think, um, like, I definitely – every year I get at least – back in the day, I would get mini tables of people that – I think Tyler Emerson always brought, like, a handful of tables every year. Yeah. He had some nice-looking stuff. And this year he brought two. Um, then they look great. I think it's understanding kind of your limits. And, like, other people have things usually. Like, we're in a hobby where people have collect – people are hoarders and they collect all sorts of stuff right and so like you're guaranteed if you're running a decent sized tournament of a tournament of any size that like your community probably has terrain even like for a while our local gw like gave me a box of terrain from the store and i just had to like label it and give it back to them afterwards they there's no problem at all with that and it was all the gw good stuff right so like i i think just yeah definitely don't try to go it alone right that's that that's that that's a good that's a good piece of uh, advice it's an excellent piece of advice, actually. I I did that call out uh, and my games workshops uh, that were two around me, about 15 minute drive either way, happily lent me terrain. Um, yeah. I, I think the one rule that I have, though, is that I need it in advance. So you, I, sure. I need to be able to collect the terrain at least a week or two weeks prior so that if something falls through or I don't have what I need, I've still got some remediation time to kind of um, to, to, to close the gaps, especially if I'm borrowing. But I think ultimately people are happy to help you, right? Everyone has the same goal. They want to see you succeed. And I find a lot of people, whether it is they've got, um, and, and even if I do get a whole bunch of terrain, I've seen people do um, painting days or terrain days at their club where they ho go buy those, yeah. those sheets of insulation foam and we all carve up rocks and we're, you know, we create a bunch of terrain um, because once you've created that asset, you can share it around. And I have seen a lot of communities yeah. um, pull up their resources because, you know, I run Sydney GT, as I've mentioned, it's an annual event. Um, I don't want to run more than one tournament. I think other people need to pick up the slack in my community but I'm more than happy to lend it out. I'm more than happy to give out mats. I might charge you a couple of dollars, but it's because those couple of dollars are going to be reinvested into terrain and mats so that we can all grow our pool of resources. I'm not getting rich on like, yeah. not video. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not blockbuster yeah. of, of, of battle mats, <laughs> nah. but yeah, but allowed because like battle mats are expensive. They're like, at least in Australia, like $150 each. So 
that's a lot of your prize pool that you'd, you'd get as you're trying to expand out. So um, that, pulling resources and putting a call out, don't don't feel bad. Like I think that's a really good shout. Matt's, a, I think more than anything, Matt's the biggest limiter to me. But I mean, they're, they're, bulk, I, mean we, I was able to get Matt's down to, I want to say about 50 bucks US a piece, but I had to buy 20 of them at a clip. So I dropped yeah. two grand on Matt's in one shot. It's tough. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Like, yeah, I I think it's the one of the big limiters. Like, uh, 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 no, is like just mats in general. I there's not really many good options that are very affordable, to be honest. Like, there's just yeah, there's definitely quality difference, right? You can get the the twenty dollar mat, but that thing is it's gonna tear up. It pills. It pulls. It stretches. Then you've got the you know the one or two companies that make mouse pad mat style that are just head and shoulders above yeah and, and what gareth's mentioned as well um matt companies will give di- uh, massive discounts to tos um i got i got a whole bunch of mats uh, i bought like 20 at one go and i got a whole bunch of discounts um i know also my t- my my when i go out for sponsorship and i ask for some su- su- you know su- support from the community um i always get at least a free battle mat um to give away as like a best opponent or some type of award so um, they, they're quite generous and they're quite helpful as well. And um, if you, I mean, it, it depends on how much money you've got. I think ultimately, I think yep. it's about creating a price point. And like again, there's so much detail we can go into this around, you know, price and and price allocation. And you know, I think ultimately, 3D printing has been one of the big factors in being able to scale my tournament. Yep. Yep. Um, to, to to create my own trophy, like, like last last event that happened this year. I got some custom trophy designs created for myself. So instead of spending a couple of hundred dollars at the local shop, getting my own generic sports team type trophies, I've now actually got some Age of Sigma trophies that I can not only yeah. are more custom to me, but also reduce cost. And that money can go back into prize pool, creating things like um, all my players get like a pack, a gift pack that'll have three, six and nine inch as well as, objectives and you know you give away things that again you reinvest into everybody yeah we, we did a thing this year that i was super happy with um where uh every person that got a painting nomination got a um an engraved aluminum like card it was like a like aluminum business like a black like a black anodized aluminum business card and it just had like nashcon best painted nomination 2022 on it um and it was really fun going around i didn't do like a big uh, presentation for it. It was basically like a, in round five, I went around and gave them to the people at, at the tables. Um, and that, that seemed to go pretty well. I think that's pretty cool. And then Anthony printed up some cool, like car, like business card holders for him. And, uh, it was, it was like a cool little thing. It was very inexpensive. Um, but like a cool, like recognition thing. That is one of the differences between, uh, Nashcon being attached to the convention and the con versus city GT where it's your, your own standalone thing. Pure independent. Is- yeah, so most of the costs for our tournament or David's tournament, um, not toot my horn, I've absorbed a lot of financial uh, cost for NashCon um, because the con takes all the money and just allocates David this little bit, and that really only covers prizes. I mean, I remember the first year um, there wasn't even going to be a uh, faction, uh, best in Grand Alliance. Uh, awards and then someone coming uh said hey i want that to be something you guys do 
and donated money to David to buy those additional awards the first year um, just because of, of the size of the, the tournament is running. So uh, there, there can be a significant financial outlay uh, when you don't, when you are attached to a convention like that versus standalone. Um, but that's true. just to say, you know, yeah, you can still do it, but asking for help is always a good idea. And we do have a community that is uh, majorly uh, comprised of good, nice, honest, happy to help people. Um, so don't don't forget to ask your, your local community. You will find a lot more people that are willing to help you than than you would imagine. Yeah, my first my first Sydney GT when I ran it was actually at a con, very much like what you're talking about. So we have Moab or the Mother of All Battles, literally actually in a couple of weeks, um, and that's where I first started running my my tournament because they provided tables, they provided a bunch of terrain, not all the terrain, but a lot of it, and it reduced the reduced the risk for me because um, I didn't have to do a lot of these things. But as yeah. you said, the prize pool and the money going to me was very little. So I had to be smart with how I spent the money. And it meant that there's some things that I wanted to do, I couldn't do. But it also meant um, being very thrifty. So I'll look on like the Australian buy and sell. And when I see somebody selling like a new inbox, um, unopened hobby for cheap, I can buy it. And I'll, and I'll take the cost now, but I know that I can pull it out at a tournament later on. Or as you said, yeah, I'd love to do a whole bunch of 3D printed terrain, but this particular year, I'm just going to focus on foam. I'm going to focus on cheaper material that I eventually replace in a couple of years' time. Um, when I've grown the event, I'm more profitable. Uh, yep. I've built that reputation and maybe even going alone, um, which is ultimately what I've done. Yeah, I think if people – if you can have a nice centerpiece of terrain on each table – uh, most people will overlook some of the scatter terrain that you can then upgrade later on down the road um, I, is what I really think. Uh, just that you have something that stands out on each table. Yeah, yeah. even like, um, you know, like David, I know you're talking about Amazon with the bag of trees, but also like I use a lot of, um, oh, what are they called? The aquarium stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So you can get a big bag of aquarium um, foliage that's just plastic and um, it's already pre-painted um, for cents on the dollar. You go on to eBay and you probably find them really oh, yeah. cheap. So uh, another great way to fill out your terrain, get some scatter. Definitely. I I, I saw a, a comment from Gareth come through about um, about uh, eating the price of the venue if you go it alone. Yeah, that that's a true, and especially around like Nashville, like it's a tourist heavy city um like like venues are not cheap around here um and so it's it's one of those things where it's yeah it's been i've been super reluctant anthony and i argue about it every time we were together i've um, come so. more onto his side though i really have so. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the new i'm in the new york of australia like sydney is the new york um yeah. and i'm competing with wedding uh, venues yeah like ultimately yeah. i'm at 100 plus players that's not a hundred person that, that's that's nice sitting around tables kumbaya wedding style birthday parties i'm competing with like 400 500 sized venues for weddings and like do they want to have a bunch of gaming people or do they want to get the big bucks off the wedding and the the djs and the the food and the alcohol yep. so uh, i i can appreciate that you know again it's about the experience what you're trying to run um and and that kind of when i think about my tournament 
I'm thinking about like one of the things that I do when I, especially like I'm, at the moment, I'm looking at a new venue potentially, and that's why I can go go bigger. Is I got the floor plan and I gridded it out and I went right. Well, you know how how are my tables going to be set up? Where are my laneways? How much distance do I want between the different rows so they're not asked to ask and you know people aren't kind of be um, having a bad experience? It means some of those battle plans where you're kind of on the short end short end edges. I can run those because I've got yeah. the space gaps because I've allocated them in advance in my planning of you know the the tournament. So that allows me to think about how many players I can have, the types of battle plans that I want to run, the experience. Like I'm even thinking about putting a Xbox, not an Xbox, an N64. <laughs> and one of the things that I'm thinking about doing for next year is having a little Mario Kart tournament. So for people who get table really awesome. early, I can have a bunch of like four-player Mario Kart. And at the end of the event, it's something to keep to keep people entertained who got tabled in turn two or turn three and like they got an hour to kill before the next round. We just I have a Jacob Barry running around it that keeps everybody entertained. I, I, I'm going to steal that coach. I love that <laughs> a lot. Like, like there's just so many things that you can do outside of it. And I think that's where like the game within the game, like another thing that I do to keep my, and I've talked about this in the past, but um, something that I stole from the narrative event at blood and glory was um, they do negative achievements and um, it was more of a narrative type thing, but I, I, I stole it and put it in for competitive play. And basically at the start of the round, there's one, there's one negative achievement every battle round. So let's say battle round one, I will announce just before the game start. I say, guys, the negative achievement is you fail a three inch charge. Mm. The first three people, five people who, who fail the charge um, fail a three inch charge can get a prize off me. And it might be a minor prize. It could be like a little blister. It could be a, a bunch of accessories or dice or whatever. But it's a way of allocating the prizes so that even if someone has a bad experience, um, you're keeping the energy up. Uh, and people actually compete for it. They, they get really excited when they miscast that spell and their hero dies. They, uh, you know, like, like whatever it might yeah. be. That's cool. Uh, yes, air conditioning as well. Absolutely. You know, any ways that again, you can, again, people are sacrificing their, their time to be with you having table, like even one thing I've been thinking about lately um, is just the height difference. Like when you have a table, like what's the optimum height so that you're mm -hmm. not over, you know, you're not bending over, hurting your back. Um, all those little funny things, I think as a tournament organizer, you start thinking about, which is insane. Yeah, look, we we uh, Nashcon happens in August in Nashville, so uh, it, you're you could survive <laughs> if you didn't have uh, uh, um, air conditioning. Like literally, people would be expiring on the floor. Yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Now, look, there's some really cool t you know tables, and I love the way you're thinking about it. I guess, like you know, the level. How do you? One thing that I was just showing, actually, I was just showing off the best. That's what I wanted to talk about here was actually mm. the, the some of your best painted noms and um, you know some of the display boards. Like, how do you how do you encourage that part of the hobby? You are a tournament. You are getting people to want to win. They want to score the battle tactics, the grand strategies. They want to win the prize. But how also do you uh, encourage the hobby? Um, I know you mentioned that you know there's some little prizes and some um, some points that go into the in, in, into the total VP, but. What else are you doing to encourage the hobby and and conversions and painting standards and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, I mean, because may, my I, I guess my background in this is that I I love the hobby side of, of Warhammer. I love painting. It's like something I'm super passionate about. I, it's like I spend way more time painting than I do gaming. Um, and I really feel strong. And I think most people do, right? I mean, I, honestly, most people spend more time painting their armies than they do playing it. It's just how it works. Um, and, and I I think I feel really really strongly about re- rewarding it as much as as the people as the gaming side. Um, so part of it is going back to the pack and intent is making sure that you're awarding tournament points. Uh, so, so it actually contributes to the overall score, right? So if you're going for best overall, um, like it is a, if you get best painted, it is a significant chunk of the, of the, of, of points to get, get allocated, uh, to, to that person. Um, so there's, there's a competitive aspect to it. Um, I think there's also kind of, um, all from a prize support standpoint, our trophies, the one, the best painted trophy was like a giant two handed sword this year. Like it was like a, like a, like a really big and like, and like, and, and then also having like multiple ways to, to a reward appearance. So the one hand is best painted. Best painted is a judged award. Um, so it's basically in the past we had Vince Vitarella do it. I did it this year with Anthony's support as well. Um, and uh, so that, that's the one that's based purely on skill at painting. Right. Um, the other, it, it, and then we have a separate award, which is coolest army, which is all around like it's it's a player voted, um, and we have all everyone go out display, put their armies out for display, and it's it's based on yeah, it's just popular uh, popular vote, and there's no qual there's no like qualifiers for that. It's basically just like what looks the coolest, right? And so that's when you really see like display boards come in, and obviously paint comes in comes into play there as well. But you have theme and. Um, all that stuff gets wrapped in together. And it also gives people who maybe aren't the most like technical painter. Right. So like, obviously someone like Vince is like an award winning painter. Right. And so like he, he paints to like a, a level that most humans don't paint to. Right. Why, why but, bother if Vince is the enemy there? Right. Like it's totally like, it's so but, easy to but, throw it in. But the thing is like, you never know because like there, there are some certain like themed armies that they can maybe pip him just based on like, how things are put together but there's also like um it's like the coolest army award also gives someone an incentive to go and like really work hard right because even maybe if you feel like you know i have no i have no chance at best painted then there's a there's the coolest army route which is likely where the second best painted army goes right i mean because a lot of times the the army that's second that, that like the next level is like this army that's like Everyone's like, oh, that army looks badass. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go like vote for that one, right? And so there's lo- I think multiple paths to appearance awards is something that I, I'm like super passionate about. Um, we also award the runners up. They get they get um, smaller awards um, uh, and, and they also get tournament points. And so it's kind of again kind of incentivizing that. And then I think again, I'll kind of harken back to the players. I think every year, because we've had kind of a consistent base of people who have come every year they kind of know what to expect and they bring their a game right like i had multiple multiple people text me like before the event like hey i'm bringing i'm bringing the heat this year i'm bringing like the, <laughs> the best army that i can that i can um like put on the table appearance wise and i was psyched because like if you look if you're looking at the pictures like on on the screen right now like there's some stunning stuff like i mean like you know you got vince's in the bottom right which is amazing joe pagano's there on the left which his army hip <laughs> freaking awesome you know you got uh aaron's uh nurgle there i mean honestly like, like there are so many the one in the top right 
uh, he, that the, the video really is required for that one. Cause he had it like fully like uh, a mechanized, like windmill that was spinning and like smoke and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just like super nice. cool. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, one thing that I kind of learned, um, in between my last tournament. So I was able to rectify it in my latest tournament is in the past. And I was guilty of it. I, when, when I asked people to set up their coolest army, I would tell people just set it up on your table. So normally mm. you do it before the lunch break and, and I don't know what your venue lighting is like, but there's patches where lighting is really good. Some patches where lighting yeah. isn't the best, isn't the best. And sometimes, especially when you're in the back or in, you know, a particular corner, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle where someone doesn't see your army. So one thing that I did last Sydney GT was I actually dedicated a special area where people could set up their armies yeah. on parade. So it, everyone was judged at the same place. Everyone was, was allocating in the same space and everyone had a fair shot. And um, it's something that I think worked really well. Uh, and it allowed people to do videos because obviously you could pan from one board to like seven boards in one go and a lot of great discussion, a lot of energy. So that was probably one big thing that I had learned when setting up Coolest Army, Best Painted. And the other part as well that I really enjoy, I, I, I'm kind of big noting myself, I, I really like this idea, is I, I've done a couple of social media rewards where I've told people to, uh. um, to award people like the best quality and, and the amount of posts. But also I've done best painted votes actually from social media. Mm. So I've actually, I've actually taken photos and allocated a different prize and said, um, internet's favorite. I can't remember the name I called it, but I still had coolest army. I had best painted and I got, um, people getting involved and again, getting my brand and my tournament and showing off the best of the hobby, um, to the world. And I think that's one great thing about Twitter and Instagram is that we kind of get that hobby FOMO seeing what's happening at other tournaments, giving ourselves ideas and kind of inspiring each other. Yeah, I agree. I, your, your note about having a special landing spot for, um, for painting is super, uh, I, I agree. So la that's actually a learning. And we talk about like improvement year to year, uh, last year's, uh, um, uh, Nashcon, we did like a, like a, on, on the lunch break where like everybody puts your armies out. It was like the first day and, put your armies out wherever they can go and we'll then do the, we'll do the coolest army votes day one. That was partially for logistics because it's easier to get like, instead of getting everything in round five or round four, like you get things on day one. So you can start like tallying things. But the problem was that those armies, people hadn't been around the event long enough to be able to like assess the armies. And so when we set everything out, there also wasn't like a specified place to put everything. And so the voting was not great. And so learning was, okay, this year, do it on day two. People have been able to walk around and look at the armies longer and have a special place for, for them to put it. So we had like a back row of tables. It, they only, the back row only existed because we had drops, but it, you know, whatever. Uh, and, um, and so the, we did have like, like a whole row of tables where people were able to put their display boards and stuff. It worked great. We also get semi-lucky because on day two, that's the Sunday, a lot of the historical stuff has started to wind down and, some of those people have left. Some of the vendors move out, so we get a couple of yeah. tables around the edge of the uh, of our playing tables where we can steal one or two of those and have people set up on those, which really helps yeah. as well. It's true. Plus, Sundays are more casual day, like day one of a tournament, especially when people are trying to go three and oh, and they're very concentrated. Then day two, the pack is kind of settled. You got the people who are in contention of winning the tournament. 
everyone else is then kind of settled on where they're kind of at and it's a much more chilled environment. There's usually only two games as opposed to day one, which is three games. Yep. Um, and and even lunch is a lot less rushed as well, I think. Um, day two is probably the day. And you can allocate a little bit more time. Like I very get very specific to go, well, lunch is this much, but I also allocate extra time to make sure that the people get to to um, set up and, and, and pack down and vote. So... Um, that's probably one learning I've had as well is don't just cram it in lunch because most people get focused having lunch. And if you've got a big event, your kitchen blows out, people are rushing for food, games ran over time. You don't get the full experience. Yep. Cool. <laughs> All right. We kind of covered <laughs> it's, that. It's, it's true. Maybe, maybe some of the only other questions I want to, I want to ask before we kind of wrap it up is, we talked a little bit about prizes and awards, but we haven't actually addressed it properly. Like, how do you think about prizes? How do you think about distributing your cash, the what you've got? Um, do you buy GW product? Are you are you you know are you speaking to sponsors and getting discounts? Like, how do you think about that reward and recognition piece at, at, at a tournament? Because I think that's important. It's very important. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's we. There's been one, so okay, maybe first and foremost, I think I always value trophies over prize support. That's that's like my, my I love giving away trophies. It's like, like the cool thing for me. Like we all buy models. And so like, I feel like giving people more models that they're going to put on like the put on eBay later is less exciting to me than um, giving people like some like something really cool they can put on the wall. Um, so that was like when I didn't have, when I had very little money, I spent all my money on trophies uh, and had very little like, uh, like like models and like support and boxes of models to support as we've grown and as people have like we had some very generous donors people who like gave things like we were able to do more prize support uh or more yeah outside surprise support in terms of like boxes of models right um and and the way that i i prefer to do those is um because i've seen many tournaments who like they give they give the prize support in addition to trophies or, 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 or you know medals whatever they also give like a box of models to the winners and it's and so i think we touched on this earlier it's like keep keep keeping continuing to award the winners is just like yeah win more like, win more Man. yeah because like you know it, it, you want it you go to a tournament it's always a great feeling if you bring something home right it's and, and like have something to show for it um and so trophies for the winners and then i i like distributing prize support kind of randomly as, as just kind of like a thanks for coming type thing. Right. Um, that's, that's like, that's where I, that's what I like doing. I think we did it this year. I, I had, I had a really fun time doing it and I think it was received pretty well. Um, but that's, that's kind of where, that's kind of where we landed a bit. And I will say like, we got a killer deal on, on like prize support from, from a, from a local store that was doing like a, like a clean out. And so that was why we were able to do that. Again, I spend, the vast majority of my budget on on trophies um we also have like um one of our one of my friends and the guys who, who in, in our community uh works at a um the company called orca they do um like uh um coolers and and like uh, uh um, tumblers and mugs and stuff like that and so we, we were able to like get like custom engraved like really cool like barrel tumblers that were like uh so th those were like in additional awards that we were able to give out and stuff so it was cool yeah, the the when we 
just randomly generated some table numbers, and then David went off to a couple. I went off to a couple, and we're just like, okay, I need you guys to stop for two seconds and just roll a G6 apiece. Okay, if you won here. Here's this model. Here's that, you know, box of models. And, like, the fun factor there, great for us, but it, it seemed really, really fun for the, the players at the table too. Um, so yeah. it, it wasn't just a, hey – you know, I've been to events we all have where, oh, you want best painted? Cool. Here's essentially a whole other army that you got to go along with your award. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, th- there are also some instances of people who won that roll off of the table who gave their opponent the box. Where they were like, hey, I don't need this. Do you want it? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'll take it. So it was like yeah. a cool thing where like there's no stakes. Like you just like give, you just got something for free. So it's like, whatever. I mean, it's, it, was, it was fun. It was cool. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's interesting you say that as well because you're right. Like we, Gareth mentioned it, you all mentioned it. You know, the winning the winning is the games and the trophy and the ITC Masters points, yeah. right? Um, for me, like that was kind of that that moment of realization was so important because then it does allow you to do a lot of fun things and rethink about the way you spend your money. And for me, it's about spending more money on the guarantees, which is the um, the thing that the players are going to get um, by entering your tournament. As I mentioned, those accessories or things like that. I give everyone custom dice for the event, the Sydney GT dice, and every year I'll buy Sydney GT dice. Um, I had gotten like um, Scrivo, um, Honest Wargamer Scrivo. I've gotten mm-hmm. him to custom uh, one idea I, I stole from a Briz Hammer, sorry, uh, a local one in Australia. Is every year they, when they run their tournament, they have custom art. So every tournament, everyone gets a sticker of said art. No, that's fine. So I guess you're collecting cool. stickers as you attend yeah. more of these tournaments. And something that I had done over the last couple of Sydney GTs is I honored the winner in the next year sticker. So when, oh, um, when, it's when, cool. yeah. So when, like when um, Stormcast had won one of the last city GTs, the next year sticker was, I actually asked the player, I said, Sean, what do you want the sticker to be? And he was running like um, the old anvils of Heldenhammer long strikes. So we got a, a long strike photo, a, a, a cut character done. I got Scrivo to do it went and got stickers and then everyone got that sticker in addition to the accessories and the dice. So then everyone walked away, whether you went five and oh, three and two, zero and five, everyone walked away with a little bit of value in addition to what kind of what, what they'll pick over the time. Cool. I like that. That's cool. That is, that's really cool. I think, I think we all agree that spending more money on prizes is probably not the best approach. And I think one of the things that I'd done recently, actually, um, actually, it wasn't even my initiative. I'd spoken to a sponsor, uh, a local game store, and they said, hey, do you want a Curse City box? You can have it on the condition that you raise money for charity. Mm, so yeah. I'm like, cool, okay. So okay. we did like a, a, a money or we did a, um, a, a Gift, silent gift raffle, raffle kind of thing yeah silent raffle everyone just paid a couple of dollars and you know i split the money 50 50 to, uh, to mental health and to um to animal shelter so uh it was a, again cool. everyone likes to kind of I, 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 that, that charity piece is becoming more and more popular i've noticed because yeah. again we spend so much money on on the hobby like do i need another box of anvil guard no cool put that money to to good use yeah, I completely agree. I, I I think that's a great. I mean, I, Holy Wars does it. Um, I, I I know other uh, other uh, uh, events do it as well. I think it's awesome. Yeah, big fan. All right, la- last couple of questions, and we kind of wrap this up. What makes Nashcon great? If you were going to give me advice as a tournament organizer, and I wanted to improve the experience at my tournament, 
and we've been to enough events and we kind of know the generic setting, not naming names or picking on people or like whatever, but what can, what can a TO do to improve their scene based off like what you have learned along the way? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so I'll touch on things that I haven't touched on so far. I think we've probably talked a lot about terrain and prizes and pack and all that kind of stuff. So I think um, being, there's something something about being a tournament organizer you're kind of like a host right you're like the person hosting events like it's it's like welcoming people into your house you want to give like you kind of like go in with the mindset of like i want to give these people the best time they've paid to be here they've traveled they've given up a weekend of their time like they could be doing something else right but they they chose to come here right and so it's like i want to make sure that when they come here they have the best of they, the best experience possible so it's kind of kind of going in with that kind of mindset is 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 a kind of like top of mind for me so being just simple stuff like being friendly being uh being willing to be like being humble i, I think as well like with, like not having some sort of like air about you like oh you've come to my tournament and uh, you you know what you know it's kind of like you know again like you're doing you know we're all we're all kind of like enjoying this together you chose to be here I am just happy to facilitate your fun, right? And so, like, it's kind of like just the air that you give off and kind of how you want to hold yourself. That's kind of like one of the big things for me. The other thing is, like, go talk to people, right? Like, so, like, it, it, I will say, like, one of the one of the challenges of, like, running a bigger event, like, as we got bigger, this year was the biggest event we had. I did have a harder time going around and talking to people individually. But making it making a point to like walk around the tables like not like interrupt games but like if you have a chance like peek in and like just ask them how the game's going introduce yourself like talk to people kind of just like off to the side like be personable and like people enjoy that also like just like squat down and look, at people, look at people's armies like on the table and like what i like to do is like just kind of circle through the tables and i'll look and see like if an army catches my eye i'll walk over and like talk to them to this, uh, while during their game. Like, Hey man, like this looks really great. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. and just like have those like one-off conversations. It just helps people. And people just, I think they appreciate it. I always do. Like when I'm playing in a tournament and someone comes, like, comes up to my, up to my game and it's like, Hey, your army looks awesome. That's like a, just a boost of confidence and people will love it. Right. It, and I think it's just, um, you know, there's a thing in, in the U S called like Southern hospitality. It's like, a, it's like a thing that's like, the south is supposedly known for right um i think it's maybe a little contrived but it's it's something that's a thing but i do think that it's something that i like to try to you know make happen right people remember being you know the, that to is really friendly right like, like being approachable and 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 then like when things happen around like rules discussions not getting super like worked up about it and being honest, like, I think, well, I think I had to practice a lot of like humility and honesty in this last year. Cause I just wasn't from a rule standpoint, wasn't as up to speed as I usually am. And so I had to, when I got called over for rules, I like, I would tell the, 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 the people playing like, look, I may not have the right, like what you may not agree with me. <laughs> like, and I may have it wrong. Like that's like fully transparency. I might have this wrong, but you've called me over here and I don't want to sit here for 20 minutes and try to figure out the rules. So here's what my ruling is going to be. And just bear with me. And I think people do appreciate that. And I, I don't think, I think most people will work with you. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but I'm trying to touch on some of the stuff that's a little bit more 
subjective, um, right. And like touchy feely, emotional <laughs> side of, of being a TO than like the number of terrain pieces you put on the table and stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? This is, ex this is exactly what I wanted to hear because I think it's the, this is the detail that cool. I've written my players pack. I have got a bunch of terrain. I've set up the table. So what? And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I want to I want to get to Crazy Horse as well. I, I don't want to kind of steal anyone's thunder, but I just want to reinforce a couple of things is being accessible. I think that's really important. Um, something that I did last tournament was um, so I got some um, some staff shirts printed off. So um, I had yep. just got like a Sydney GT logo and I made sure on the back and the front it had staff. So it was easy if someone's in a, a rules dispute or if they wanted to ask a question, it was easy to find a, a staff member. Um, yep. That was really important. But you're right. Like as, as a tournament organizer, there's so many things to do to keep the ship running that it's easy to stay at your little desk in your laptop and not yep. be accessible. And when someone's like, you're, you're in the middle of, I don't know, Best Coast pairings or, or doing something and someone and wants to talk to you but you're not accessible – they won't annoy you. They won't, won't want to annoy the TO. But by walking the floor, taking photos, having conversations, being approachable um, goes a long way. So I, I would 100% agree with what you just said. But before I say any more, Crazy Horse, anything else that you'd want to add? Uh, just a couple quick things. So uh, one would be start out by thinking about the event you want to run. We've said it a couple times, but it's the truth. Do you want to run the bone stock GT by the book? There's nothing wrong with that. It happens every weekend. People will come to that. You can do that. Do you want to do something a little bit different and shake up the, the tree a little bit? And my event uses two lists because I think it's one little thing that is different. It sets us apart from others. Some people like it. Some people might not. You can vote with your dollar. You can come. You don't have to come. A lot of people seem to like it, but it sets us apart. We're a little bit different. If you want to be something a little bit different than the standard GT that anybody can play in at any time, you want to have your own little niche, do it. Uh, and if it's not too crazy and far-fetched, you'll see people will come. They'll have a great time. They'll enjoy it. Um, and the other thing is uh, respecting the players. And by that, I mean... I can't tell you how many events I've gone to this past year where there was no players pack. And I don't even mean like a physical pack that they handed me at the event. I mean where if I wanted to see what missions we were playing, I had to go back onto the website where I bought my ticket, click on a hyperlink to then click on another hyperlink. And no one ever told me that that's where I would find a players pack. Another player told me that because that's how they found it. Horse crap to me. I'm like, why? <laughs> you had my email. You emailed me that, you know, 15 times at the events coming up. You emailed me to now use this code to log into BCP. Why couldn't you just email me that here's my player's pack? Um, I just, I think that, you know, that little bit of respect. Respecting the player as far as I was at a, and I won't name names of, of peoples or places, but I was at a 72-person event and I was at a 76-person large event that most people would know of. Neither of them had a ringer. I So I paid $80 for a five-game tournament and had a buy in round one and stood around my thumb up my butt. Not, not happy about that. Uh, you know, um, the other one was, you know, someone else had a buy, and I'm like, that shouldn't happen. I, especially, um, you know, the 
the second time, the guy who had a buy in round one, this is his first ever GT. He was so yeah. excited to come, and now he's got to wait with all this angst even longer. Respect your, your players. Have that kind of stuff thought out ahead of time. Um, don't, as a TO, don't be a ringer. Uh, don't play in your own event. You have enough things going on. Have a friend that's willing to drop out if there's not enough people or step in in the kit scenario that someone drops between day one and day two. Uh, think of those little things, and that'll go a long way when you respect the, the, the player's time at the table like that. Because everybody's committing a lot of time and money to come to an event. They, they deserve that little bit. Yeah, the, the players pack for me, first off, um, players pack for me is I always write my players pack, even if it's a bare bones first version of it. It's when tickets go live or actually in advance of tickets going live because uh, the players pack to me sets the expectation is this is the tournament, this is what you are agreeing upon, and by buying a ticket, you agree upon the standard, the layout, the timing, everything they'll want to run, and that it's essentially consent. And, yeah. yeah, sometimes, like, like you know, GBH is coming around the corner, uh, and maybe your tournament's coming in February, so how do I create a players pack for a GB I don't know about? Well, that's fine. Put some to-be-determined stuff. But, you know, if I'm traveling, I need to know when I'm coming in and what I'm doing and, you know, what's expected of me. How are you judging painting? So I've got a couple of pictures of, you know, um, of a Stormcast model that is not painted and will be pulled off the table, one that meets battle ready. Like if I'm going to define painting, well, I need to have examples of the painting that I'm judging you against. If I'm going to be doing sports voting and, you know, what, what am I measuring you? Like I hate... I hate when you say to people like vote someone out of zero to five of, you know, how many points they are in sports. Cause that's arbitrary. But if you go, here's a checklist of here's the things I want you to measure. Did they turn up on time? You know, were dice rolls clear? Did you uh, blah, 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 blah. It's very measurable and achievable. And that players pack is that consent document between you and, and everyone comes to your event. So, um, yeah. and if they don't read it, that's up to them. But I, I think that's critical. Something else that I've learned that I just want to share as well is, yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. As Gareth saying that, you know, they buy a ticket, but they don't know what they're going to get. And, you know, heavily modifying the, the players pack, you know, massive FAQs or house erratas late in the game, um, I think is, is crazy as well. That was one, one of the of events the I went to too, was they FAQ'd some stuff, found out the day of like, oh, Catacross and OBR. Uh, he's now command ability affects all the legions, not just his named legion. I'm sorry, what now? Yeah, <laughs> that that's yeah, that's a bit crazy. Um, one other thing that I kind of never really appreciated. By the way, I just want to reinforce the buy buster stuff. Um, yeah, thinking about that player experience, and um, if someone's traveled, because I get a lot of travelers, right? So um, yeah. for my tournament, I want to make sure that if you're spending one a full weekend away from anything that's in your life, your family, your pets, your, your, your other hobbies, the gym, whatever it might be. Um, I want to make sure that, you know, your time is well spent. So I definitely have to have a ringer. Um, you definitely want to have a buy buster. You want to have them with a list that is average. Like you don't want to have like the most overpowered, I don't know, Seraphon list where this, like this, this buy buster is going to be <laughs> croak NATO'd or something off you. Yeah. 
but like like you know i've got like a generic stormcast like second edition like you know soul wars times two type it's not crazy but one thing i've kind of learned over the years that uh, i really appreciated and and i did a bathus gt restream um like a, a, a recap that was kind of brought up was i always try to create at least one social event either before the tournament or during the tournament so a morning breakfast um when i went to bathus gt last weekend i put a call out and said hey we're all going to have dinner on a friday night this is a location feel free to come because there's a lot of people who come to the tournament that don't know most of the people and like for me who's been in the scene for seven years either i'm comfortable walking up to someone or i probably know you already but for a lot of people it's very intimidating so as a to if there's a way to have a, a, a breakfast before the tournament so people can just like have a casual conversation. Uh, in the past, I've had like a lanyard with people's names and like their social handles. And I asked them obviously to send it to me in advance, just ways or a little sticker that has their name on it. Um, it, it just means that anyone who is newer to the scene or maybe not as confident. Um, yeah. Like you've, you've, you've got access to people and you're having a good experience. Yeah. What? It's all good. It's all really good stuff. Luckily, I'm not uh, I'm not shy, so I I go out and talk to everybody I can. Uh, so even you know, especially like the, I had three guys travel over from North Carolina, never met you know ninety percent of these people, but I'm introducing them to everybody that I know, and you know, knowing a lot of the people in there, just you know, commingling everybody, making them all feel comfortable. It went, it went a long way. Like when I went to Blood and Glory, this is even before I was a YouTuber, right? Like literally it was actually the catalyst for me creating the YouTube channel. I went to I went to England to play at Blood and Glory and I, I knew almost nobody. I played and like it was so when that when people heard there was an Australian here, people actually came up and introduced themselves. First time I met like Ben Johnson, I met, you know, Facehammer crew, I met, you know, so many people, either podcasters or even no podcasters, just like, hey thanks for coming. My name is X. It just okay. meant that, you know, I got to meet people. They invited me to the lunches and told me what to do and all the little things that I would have never have known. And I had that same hospitality at Adepticon where, you know, I, I might've known Chuck, I might've known Vince, but then they introduced me to so many people and then broke the tension and it, and it built friendships and it, and it helped um, make the, the experience as best as possible. Yeah. I agree. Cool. For sure. Cool. Is there any final things you'd kind of want to add to this? I think we've had a really good discussion about um, what makes a memorable tournament. And I think if I think about what makes a memorable tournament, it's the player experience. Ultimately, yeah. it's about you have found the audience that you you've catered for them. And as I mentioned earlier on, you know, what is the event that I want to run? If it's a narrative event, cool. Your players pack will say that it's a narrative event. The way that you score and you match up and you encourage the hobby and you run the event is all narrative. If you're trying to encourage people who are going to be the best of the best and you want to, you know, have an ultimate grand champion of who is the best player in the world, then there's things you're going to cut out. It's, it, it's starting at the top of the tree. What is it that you want to run? And how do you make it possible? Um, as Gareth saying, awesome guests, awesome event. Uh, you attract the people you want to attract. You create the event that you want to create. And then then next year or next event, they go tell their friends and family, hey, this yep. is for you. Bring you in. And that's how your scene grows. 
Crazy Horse, I'll throw to you first and then David, I'll, I'll get you to kind of close off. Is there anything you kind of want to say or any other final pieces of wisdom when it comes to creating a memorable event? Exactly what you said. Start with the top line. Define what you want to do. Is it a standardized event, a narrative event, something a little hybrid in between? Put it out there. Um, don't be afraid to ask the community for help if you need a little bit of help because things are, are growing bigger than what one person can do. And uh, be be receptive to some of the uh, feedback that your your uh, tournament goers give you. Um, it's not that you know they're trying to belittle you or pick on you or anything like that. They just want to see your event grow bigger and better. And uh, it might be something you really didn't didn't think about that you can implement for next year. And uh, trust me, there's plenty of good people in this hobby that will help you out, give you good advice, and want to see you have a good time. So. Yep, I I mean yeah, y'all y'all hit on most uh, hit on everything. I mean I think really, um, I, I I think it's it's really important to remember we did this for fun, um, right? Like we all have all, <laughs> most of us have jobs, most of us have families, pets, whatever you name it. A lot of a lot of uh, other commitments outside of this game that we that we do, right? And so we do this to as a kind of a a getaway from reality, right? And so. Uh, I think, you know, approaching being a tournament or organizer as kind of like a facilitator of that experience, I think is, is the most important part. And so, you know, clearly communicating intent, uh, sticking with your, with, with your, you know, your pack, the like things, things that, that you wrote in your pack, like sticking to it. Um, and I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, just trying to make sure that people are having the best, best time they can. Um, and, 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 uh, and yeah, uh, being open to criticism and uh and making every year an improvement you're not gonna nail it your first time um but maybe your third fourth time maybe you start getting close i've got two people i'm going to talk to right now if you are a player and you're not a tournament organizer you have no idea how much work goes into running an event you thinking about event david's talked about painting crazy also talked about a lot of money going into 3d printing and the effort and all there's so much that goes on behind the scenes you have no idea so showing your thanks and appreciation, whether it is a little Facebook post on the event to say thank you so much, shaking their hand, buying them a drink, grabbing them a coffee, grabbing their lunch. If there's anything you can do to just show some appreciation, it doesn't have to be money. I know um, just thanking them and like at the end of the event, you know, giving them a hug, shaking their hand, whatever it might be, um, goes a long way um, because it's a lot of effort and I'm not playing. It's two days alone that I'm not playing my hobby, let alone all the time that I haven't spent on my own hobby, getting terrain, boards, setting up takes hours, money, like so much, right? So I've talked to you, show some appreciation to your tournament organizer. To the TOs, I think um, enjoy yourself as well. I think that's probably the other part. I think we we get so heavy on, on event planning that it's easy to forget um, that, you know, it's our fun too. So make sure you're taking photos and videos and you're hanging out and, you know, chatting to people. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love running tournaments. It's a great way to give back to the community, but equally I can't wait to see more people stepping up to take on a little bit, because if everyone can run one little event, it means there's just so much going on. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. If people want to talk to either of you, your Twitter handles are below. Any shout-outs you want to make into the community, people you want to acknowledge or um, any 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 love? <sighs> oh, boy. Um, 
if if I'm yeah, I, mean, I don't know. There's so many people. I mean, I, all the people who who help out every year with with uh, with, with NashCon. Uh, there's a lot of people in the community who come in and support uh, uh, through with teardown setup. Um, people bring it. A lot of people brought in terrain mats. Um, I you know who you are, and I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you for everybody that helps with the uh, the teardown, especially that is everybody's trying to get out of there. And then you've got two, three people left with a lot of cleanup. So everybody that helps, greatly appreciate it. Um, everybody that helps with the setup is also greatly appreciated because that's uh, a whole ball game in and of itself. And just everybody that shows up, man, hope you have a good time. Thank you for coming out. You've just blown my mind because everyone helps pack down at my events. <laughs> well, well, after at the end of game five and before awards, everyone packs down. Everyone packs down and puts stuff in the truck. So that I can do the awards and then yeet out. Um, that's well, how I run he, my he, events. That's how I run my events. It's like there's like a half an hour gap that you pack your terrain up, you pack your board up, and we put them in the truck. Well, okay. Truth be told, I'm a control freak when it comes to packing as well, and so <laughs> I have a I have a system, and so I don't I don't trust everybody else to abide by my system. Yeah. It has to go back to my house. So well, I was gonna I, say it. It is also a lot goes to your house. A bunch comes to my house. Some other stuff goes to this other person's house. So it gets a yeah, little bit okay. crazy. Everything goes back yeah. to mine. Like I own, I own the wood. I know the mats. I own the terrain. I, everything is mine, right? So everyone just packs it up. I have specific things, and yeah, I make sure everyone helps because yeah, I'm not packing down four hours um, <laughs> when you're and like cleaning up your coffee and your beer and like you haven't like put that yeah. in the bin. Like, come on, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do me a favor. At least put your rubbish in the bin. All right. David, Anthony, crazy. Good one to end on. That's a great, yeah. great sentiment to end on there, Coach. Pick up your crap. <laughs> Pick up your crap. No, here's one final thing I'll, I'll end with. A bit more positive. Buy, use your Eddie Guerrero. Lie, cheat, steal. No, just go to other players' events. Like, I don't think I've seen any true original event. Everyone right. has bastardized something from Warhammer Fantasy Battles, from another gaming system, 40K, or has gone to the global Age of Sigmar. Look at the big events. Look at the LVOs, the Adepticons, the CanCons, you know, the, the NashCons, the, the, the SoCals, the Old Town Throwdowns. So many events out there. If you are a new event organizer or you're looking to improve, grab all the players packs you can find, read them, and steal and borrow the things that you like and ignore the things you don't like. If you see one particular event runs a really good painting rubrics and one person likes the way that you announce your battle plans, grab and and make a mongrel version of your player pack because we all borrow and build upon um, the events before us. So um, no, tr no event I've ever seen has been actually original where I've gone, holy shit, you have done something I've never seen before. We've all bastardized yeah. something. Completely agree. Yep. Totally agree. All right. David, Crazy Horse, thank you so much. I'm going to do the outro. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that was valuable. Um, I, and, and hopefully one day when teleporting happens, I can come to NashCon. It's definitely on you and, like, Holy holy Havoc or the Holy yeah. Wars. Definitely what I want to go to. It's very high in the radar. Definitely. We'd love to have you. Let's make it happen. That'd be amazing. Love to come. All right. All right. See you, folks. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for hanging around until the end. I hope you enjoyed that video and you walked away with a few new ideas. If you did, I would love it if you press like on the video as well as left me a comment to let me know what your thoughts are. The conversation will continue over on Discord and the link is down below in the video description. 
I want to give a massive shout out as well to the AOS Coach Patreons and YouTube members who are going in and the funds are supporting the channel and the growth that you're seeing here. So cheers, you're all bloody legends. And until next time, don't roll a one on a redeploy.